0: Chapter 60 Politics Reinforced For the second time in a month, the mayoral candidates faced each other in the town square. Garth had withdrawn, claiming he was out of jokes, so it was Mary versus Father Jones. Interestingly enough, the arrival of Mary in the region had begun to turn the tide back towards the church. The intensity of her mind, the subtle relentlessness of her hidden purpose, the subterranean rumbles of her opaque plans, all these had provoked a return to the pews for many of the local worthies. The vague feeling that something devilish had entered their world of new plenty sent them scurrying back to the forgiving embrace of God. The morning of the debate burned bright and clear. Children released from chores raced madly through the legs and boxes in the town square, while an uneasy good humour ran through the minds and hearts of the villagers. The seductive idea of being able to vote away one's troubles, rather than personally confront them head-on, is a paralysis and temptation as old as democracy. Not one soul could put his finger directly on the anxiety that mary provoked in them and they felt it even more keenly because of this and so they wished to wave their political fists in the air much as a man might madly slap the breeze to ward off an unseen dangerous insect it had been decided that mary and father jones should debate directly father jones went first "'My good, good friends,' he said slowly in his high, silky voice, his breath puffing the chill morning air, "'it is with great sadness that I return to you so quickly to ask for your vote in this election. I am aware that my primary duty is to care for your souls, not your taxes, so I humbly put my name forward as a merely temporary measure until the strange crisis,' which possesses our lands, has passed.' He called for a moment of silence for the late-knotted Bob, then continued, gesturing at Mary. "'Although our lives change little from day to day, I think it is safe to accept that we, here, in this little community, are right at the centre of the greatest changes in all of history.' I have prayed for wisdom to navigate and negotiate these changes because what seems or feels like progress to us is very often temptation from the devil. We have more. Crop yields are five to ten times what they were in my childhood and this can be a sign of favor from God or it can be the start of the soft and easy path down to hell itself. One of the greatest gifts that our Lord Jesus Christ gave us was liberation from the pettiness of endless envy. Some are taller, some are more fair, some are wealthier and healthier. Some grow to middle age with both parents sitting on their shoulders, so to speak, whispering good advice. Here his voice caught slightly. Some lose their parents young and have to make their way alone with God and the gifts of prayer as their guide. Father Jones raised one white fist and thumped it into an open palm. But with heaven as the goal and salvation as the path, resentment and rage are kept at bay. The relative evenness of our former lives has been shattered into layers of privilege and want. Now men curse those who make more money, and women curse those better able to maintain their beauty. The young priest sighed piously. His strong words were having their effect. I have prayed mightily over these conflicts, this state of affairs, and the answer from God has been relentlessly clear Thou shalt not covet. Everything that pulls you from virtue pushes you into sin. Life is more pleasurable, with fingers full of gold. But gold coins are the wedding rings of the devil himself. Mary O'Donnell would have you turn your lives inside out for the sake of those in want. Now she will doubtless say that this is the commandment of our Lord, our Lord in heaven, to sell everything we own and give it to the poor. But mercy is not a transaction. Virtue. "'is not a machine. "'To act without inspiration is to hollow out goodness,' "'he gestured at Mary. "'I have listened hard to this child beside me. "'We have ridden together, attempted to save souls together, "'and I have looked into her eyes, heard her words, "'and scoured her soul.' "'His eyes were gentle.' she was wronged and mightily so the man who wronged her has paid the ultimate price though not of her doing to be fair she was wronged as jesus himself was wronged and the great gift of jesus was the call and commandment to love our enemies listen brothers and sisters For this is the very essence, the heart of the matter. Mary O'Donnell has not once spoken of love. She has not once spoken of forgiveness. She has berated and harangued and manipulated and provoked guilt and shame for circumstances and events beyond the control of any of us. Father Jones leaned forward his eyes blazing. Does she love the poor or hate the wealthy? Does she exhort us to better virtue or use our languishing morality to control us? Lord Lawrence has fled our lands in pursuit of healthier climes and a sunnier future. Bless him, I cannot berate him for this, for he is long past the age of marriage and one cannot save souls with bread. Mary O'Donnell would have you look at the poor, the outcast, the destitute, and say that they only sin because they are hungry. Give them food and they will be just like you, she says. Yet she has returned from the wilderness and is now wealthy by all accounts. And has she become just like us? No, of course not. She is full of the raging spirit of the age, which is to look at all differences in outcomes and ascribe every one to prejudice and privilege. The same spirit which tore into the relative peace of France, the same spirit which, if not countered, will tear us apart in the centuries to come. Mary O'Donnell is not the problem. She is merely a... Symptom of these modern times. If she accepted the love of Christ into her heart, she would forgive her enemies, love those who had persecuted her, and accept the suffering that could make her perfect. Instead, she sows the seeds of rage and guilt, damning those who have a penny more, rousing the resentment of those who have a penny less. If you give her Dominion over you, over your lives. This process of sanding down all inequality will continue until nothing is left. The only place our flesh becomes truly equal is in the grave. as food for worms. I can promise you a return to simple Christian piety. Yes, we should help the poor but the poor in spirit need our attention the most. Throwing wealthy people's bread at paupers and considering yourself the second coming is the height of satanic hubris and vanity. The fork in the road that our community faces, that we all stand before, leads either to piety and humility and a gentle concern for the souls of our fellow men or to the endless resentment of material inequality. One last statement, then I retire to await your good judgment. Father Jones sighed and rubbed his forehead. After all my lofty talk, I will leave you with one simple question. In your hearts, look deep, You will find your answers, each of you. Answer me this. Are you happier since Mary O'Donnell returned from her exile? Is your household more at peace? Is your heart more at ease? He held the gazes of many faces in the crowd, stretching. The pause. I believe that God has given us a sense beyond the natural five an instinct for the approach of immorality. I cannot see into the depths of Mary O'Donnell's heart and soul, so I cannot know for certain whether she is fully aware of her attempted undoing of our society. I do know this, however. Nothing has been the same since she returned, and little change has been for the better. I believe that as a Christian community we need to restrain her ambition, her lust for power and control, and turn her dangerous but impressive mind inward to find the root of her discontent and, I dare say, madness. Giving her more power will turn her away from Christ's healing strength and only serve to inflame the divisions she instinctively seeks to widen governed by, I dare say, the dark master she remains unaware of. Father Jones finished his speech with great passion, gazing out at the assembled citizens. The cries of the children mingled with the cries of the birds. A sudden gust of wind blew a foul stench into the faces of the assembled crowd, who instinctively shielded their eyes. For a long moment, Mary stood utterly still, a dangerously ironic smile on her face. Then she mounted the podium and spread her hands, mocking the priest. Look into your hearts, your souls. When the good father was in charge, you all half-starved. Now that the new age has come, your bellies are full, which apparently puts you in grave danger. Mary shrugged. I'm not going to starve, if that's the question here. Those of us who are excluded from society will find a way back in, even if we have to blow a hole through the walls of your hearts. She gestured at the sky, the crowd. You all want a society that serves your needs, which, unfortunately, was at my expense as a child. Now, I am more than willing to meet you halfway, to work to negotiate a society that meets your needs, as well as the needs of the excluded." She gestured towards Father Jones. This fine priest would have you turn your attention to the afterlife, which is just another way of saying, focus only on yourselves, that's the path of virtue. Obsessing over your own path to heaven is a convenient way to ignore those in need around you. He would have you clamber over the bodies of the starving in order to shave five minutes off your time in purgatory. I think that is horribly selfish and unworthy of moral souls. Those of you born with lips are called ugly and shunned and rejected. And it is no fault of your own, just an accident of nature when i was a child those whose eyesight blurred early were yelled at by the clear-sighted who did nothing to earn their good vision here her voice caught as well i have no idea who my mother and father were or are for they may still be living is that my fault "'my mind that struggles against a society "'that rejected and abandoned me. "'It is like an unruly horse that I'm tied to "'and and, and dragged behind more often than not.' "'Mary's voice lowered. "'I said to our good friend Knotted Bob once "'that I did not ask for such visions, "'but they came to me anyway. "'I have often been tempted by the idea of becoming just like you, just like everyone here, and giving up the insights that make me unique, or special, at least. Am I responsible for the contents of my mind? Ever since I can remember, I have been pulled in the wake of my thoughts. I cannot put this fire out, but I will not let it consume me. We need an awakening of, of sympathy in our lands. Father Jones says that I do not act out of love. Father Jones, who sits alone in the dark, without a wife or children, without friends, as far as I can see, and who demands that you starve in order to be good, he tells me about love. Love. <laughs> with a straight face you saw it just now did he find me after I was cast out did he demand that you all beat the bushes and rescue me from the wilderness ha Mary took a deep breath but I returned from the wilderness from solitude and starvation and suicidality And I awaken your minds to the plight of the excluded. She smiled. I try, badly I'm sure, to teach you something of of sympathy and inclusion and to find a soft spot in your hearts, even for the hard-done by the hard-hearted. To my mind, that is the lesson of Christ— but the good priest scorns it as a murderous impulse that comes from a bat-winged devil flapping in my heart. Mary sighed. Even after so many years. I should be used to it, but it still stings at times. He knows that the source of my pain is the rejection I experienced the push out the black doorway that was like a portal to death. This man of Christ, this lover of the low and champion of the excluded, he tells you that I am a kind of devil, pushing you to exclude me even further. Where was he when I was cornered and almost murdered by Farmer Jigger and... Her face broke slightly. Was he able to stop them? By painting me in such a bloody red light, does not (laughs) the good father know that he will rouse these same murderous impulses in the hearts of some of you? He portrays me as a devilish enemy, because apparently I do not love my enemies. But where is his love for me? Should he not show me the power of love and forgiveness? No, he merely paints me as the bride of Satan and waits for the inevitable pounding on my door that results from his black condemnation. I was wronged by Lord Lawrence. He was the most to blame. I returned to him and turned him to a path of greater virtue, taught him how to take some of his wealth and use it to elevate the broken into at least the chance of virtue <laughs> when i walked here this morning i smelled the bakery saw the mountains of bread being piled on the street can you buy a soul with bread father jones says no most emphatically mary leaned forward slightly. But has he ever been so hungry that he had to risk his immortal soul by stealing a loaf of bread? Of course not. He speaks of things he knows nothing of. Of course you can save a soul with a loaf of bread. Most men would rather steal than starve. You all have such plenty And you can certainly pile it up in your own little solitary and selfish silos, gathering more bread than you could possibly eat. Or you can hand out some and save souls from the greatest temptation of the flesh, which is to fly from dying from hunger. Mary's voice began to rise. Why has the good Lord seen fit to provide you with such bounty? Is it so you can become fat, get gout, and lose sight of your own private parts? Self-conscious laughter scattered through the crowd. It is to help. It is to save souls. And I will not stop. Mary paused, obviously considering further words, then lowered her head and stepped down from the podium. After some more formal business, men lined up to vote. Many of them cast scornful looks at Mary, but some had obviously been moved by her speech, particularly the fatter ones. At a time when the citizens expected the vote to be ending, there was a slight vibration on the cobblestones, and the scattered tramp of marching feet could be heard from the road leading north out of the village. As they watched in amazement, a scattered column of hundreds of men and women made their way down from the north, with a black-bearded man in front. Father Jones and Norbert, the town crier, both... "'jumped up and ran in front of the advancing crowd. "'This is private business for registered citizens only,' cried Father Jones. "'We be registered,' snarled the black-bearded man in front. "'Got our papers right here.' "'Many of the villagers recognised some of the workers from the loom factory "'and had to let the men pass since they had been registered in the local parish, "'but barred the remaining few hundred. "'Mary strode up to them. Father Jones, she cried, surely you remember these good souls from the poorhouse? I made great pains to ensure that those we released have been registered in this parish, and so are legally entitled to vote in this election. I have, in fact, personally checked their records over the past few weeks, and can guarantee their eligibility. There was great consternation among the village elders, who called over the bailiff, or St. Andrews. They all conferred with Father Jones in a hurried huddle. After a few minutes, the bailiff pulled himself back from the huddle and turned to the crowd. Assuming that the names of the petitioners are matched with the parish records, there can be no impediment to their vote. There was a great outcry, but Bailiff Andrews was unmoved. "'We defend the law so that it can defend us in turn.' He kept repeating. You can always overturn the election if you find that the law has been broken, but as it stands, the election will proceed. Many citizens quit the town square in disgust. Many stayed and railed vehemently to no substantial effect. Many vowed to refuse to obey a female mayor should Mary be elected. But bailiff Andrews reminded them that the law did not generally possess specific genitals. In short, Mary O'Donnell won the day and became the first female elected mayor in the realm. Father Jones gazed in eye-widening disbelief at the truly shocking turn of events. Even after the villagers had left for their noonday meals, he stood staring at the podium, his ever-shifting feet sinking slowly into the wet earth. He felt an elemental sense of danger that was almost unbearable in its intensity. Where secular powers fail, God must prevail, he thought over and over. Before riding back to his church and writing a very lengthy letter to his superior. Chapter 61 Forgive Us Our Trespasses. There was no actual house for the mayor. Mary took a room at the inn for the time being. The first thing she did was go over the finances of the county. The results of her tabulations were unsurprising. The same problems faced her as had faced Lawrence. The county had a full belly and an empty purse. While she was reviewing the town charter, Orson Andrews knocked and came in. "'Good day, Mayor O'Donnell,' he said, seating himself. Mary stared at him for a long moment. He stared back. "'I have heard... "'But your wife is very happy,' she said. Orson Andrews did not respond. "'I don't mean because there is a woman mayor. "'What should I be called? (laughs) mayor S, "'Mayor? "'My election has pleased many, "'but your wife is famously happy. "'I'm sure that her contentment is due "'in no small part to your respect for women. "'How many bailiffs are there at present?' "'One. "'But you have deputies.' Eight. Well, that seems high. Due to recent disturbances, I have hired more. There were two six months ago. You refer to the thefts and other problems occasioned by the new loom factory? No. Rather, the men and women who inhabit it, who do not respect the law. I should say, said Mary evenly, that they have as much respect for the law as the law has had for them, but that is neither here nor there. Does this trouble you? Orson Andrews pursed his lips. "'It does not trouble me, Mayor, but it is troublesome.
1: "'Hm.
0: And I shall have to hire more at present, "'due to the new influx of those without property. "'How are your deputies paid?' "'I have a draw on Lord Carvey's accounts. "'That is quite a trust. "'Yet I cannot draw funds at present.' "'And so you need my funds, because... Lord Carvey has none. Orson Andrews watched her closely, aware of her sensual pleasure at the utterance. Tell me, Mr. Andrews, was it legal or not what happened to me all those years ago when I was cast out of the Jiggers? He stared at her impassively. It was neither. It touched the law not at all. There was no binding contract between yourself and the late farmer Jigger, as there is none between yourself and the current Lord Carvey. Hm. Mm. So, to your view, Lord Carvey cannot meet his financial obligations. That is true. I have received no communication from him, and his banker tells me that there are insufficient funds. Mary smiled. Now, it is the law in this county that no. Now, you tell me, what is the law as to the management of Lord Carvey's property if he is unable to meet his obligations? The management of the property reverts to the crown, and the representative of the crown is the mayor, myself, yourself. (sighs) Ah! sighed Mary, wondering just how long Orson Andrews could go without blinking. "'There are restrictions, of course,' he said. "'If sold, the land must be placed in the open market to prevent favoritism. You cannot destroy his property, and those in charge, yourself, must meet any outstanding financial obligations.' "'And what do you think of these laws?' "'I believe them just.' "'Good.' Orson Andrews stood and frowned. He leaned forward, placing his knuckles on the table. Mary did not find this threatening, but rather almost unbearably intimate. Yet justice is not the exclusive province of law, he said softly. The law is designed to centralize and codify the natural justice of retribution, and as such can deal with formal contract and common law. It is my absolute belief that your treatment at the hands of the jiggers was unjust and cruel, yet beyond the realm of the law. It is also my belief, he said, holding up his hand to forestall her reply, that the vengeance you are taking on this county is also unjust and cruel, in that many are being made to suffer who did not wrong you themselves. Are you finished? asked Mary may I? Orson Andrews nodded. I am one step above the Jiggers and Larry. Their wrongs were untouched by law, but my actions are securely nestled in its honorable bosom. Yet they were honest in their opposition to you. You are not in your opposition to them. There is no honor in honesty if there is no possibility of retaliation. If you say to your child, now I will beat you, the child may find little love for your candor. These wrongs are for God to avenge, Mary. She nodded slowly. I agree. Sometimes God sends a doctor to save a sick man, and sometimes he sends a woman as his sword. Mary smiled. Call your bailiffs, Mr. Andrews. Chapter 62 And Those Who Trespass Against Us Lady Barbara was not lonely, but a certain discontent had settled over her since the exodus of her family. Days passed in a strenuous fuss of household organization and forceful finger-pointings. The cook resigned in desperate fear. He was so unoccupied by the demands of preparing Lady Barbara's standard fare of toast and tea that he was once again tempted by the bottle, and chose to go and find his fortune rather than stay and wait for his misfortune to find him. She was taking tea on the front balcony when she saw a procession of horses coming up the front path. One of the strange powers of country living is the ability to recognize people at a distance. Lady Barbara saw at once that Orson Andrews rode at the head, with Mary just behind him and five men bringing up the rear. As she watched in amazement, Mary drew her hood back from her hair and sniffed the air, then darted her head forward and stared at the mansion. Lady Barbara shuddered and rose. She went inside. "'then walked quickly down the front steps "'as Mary and the men dismounted. "'Sovereign property, Mr. Andrews,' she cried, "'please remove this vagabond from my lawn. "'Mary held up her hand and walked forward. "'She stood before Lady Barbara "'and looked her up and down. "'Good morning,' she said gently. "'I picture your bones as strong "'and your muscles as weak. "'Can you picture a prison cell?' "'asked Lady Barbara, acidly. "'Trespassing is a serious offence. "'Really?' asked Mary, her eyes widening. "'I have never understood trespassing. "'I mean, we can cross a farmer's field ten times without penalty, "'should he be in a good mood. "'Yet, should he have indigestion one morning, <laughs> he can throw us in jail. "'Orson Andrews, please take this mad woman from my house!' "'But perhaps,' continued Mary, walking forward, "'you think—' "'that the farmer should be consistent "'and always prosecute trespasses. "'I ask for your forgiveness, Lady Barbara,' "'she cried, suddenly falling to her knees on the gravel. "'Can you please forgive me for trespassing and let me go? "'I am a little girl with no house of my own. "'Bailiff Andrews, this creature is quite mad. "'Take her away and put her in jail for trespassing, "'as she has before and has been warned enough. "'I am mistress here and will stand for none of it. Orson Andrews raised his eyes to her. "'Lady Barbara, I cannot.' "'Have the laws of the realm ceased? Remove her!' she cried out, backing away from Mary's grasping hands. "'Forgive me!' begged Mary. Her shoulders shook. Her scarf hid her face. Lady Barbara leaned down and hissed. "'You take from me my family. I take from you your liberty.' Forgive us our trespasses, whispered Mary. She lifted her face. Tears ran down her cheeks. I have come to make amends. Take her away, shrieked the old woman. Mary's shoulders shook harder. Orson Andrews looked at her closely, his heart sick. He, at least, saw A giggle escaped Mary's salty lips as she shook her head, still, kneeling. "'Is she mad?' asked a deputy. Orson Andrews shook his head. "'Oh, (laughs) thank you!' cried Mary, throwing her head back and laughing loud and clear. "'I am entirely converted to your views, and my conscience is clear at last!' She dug in her pocket and drew forth a ten-pound note. Please, take it. I am going back into my house, said Lady Barbara decisively. Larry shall hear of this, Mr. Andrews. <laughs> but, giggled Mary, leaping to her feet. How can you trespass in this manner? But I... Uh, <laughs> "'I am kinder than you. "'You may take a horse and cart and your clothing "'and some money as well, either your own or this note "'I offer you in goodwill, for this house is mine "'by all the laws of your fair realm.' "'Orson Andrews stepped forward. "'Lady Barbara Carvey, your son has become bankrupt, "'and if you have not the funds to pay for his expenses, "'the house and all its contents and your lands remit to the custody of Mayor Mary O'Donnell for the duration of such time as the bills remain unpaid. Lady Barbara stopped in her tracks. Even the birds went silent. She turned around. Bank. Bankrupt. Her head tilted to one side. What did you say? Orson Andrews' voice was sorrowful. Mary is the owner here now, Lady Carvey. She looked at Mary. What what did you do? I did nothing, replied Mary. I did back. But but Orson Orson Andrews uh, I I cannot be compelled to quit my own house. Certainly not, said Mary. Now all that is left for you to do is find a house and call it your own, for this one no longer answers that description. <laughs> <laughs> oh, heavens, she said, cupping her cheeks in her hands. <laughs> I, th- I thought I had forgotten how to laugh. Barbara's face crumpled she sobbed. It sounded like a rock breaking. When she spoke, her voice was hoarse. It was a voice she had never used before. "'But there there is nothing worse. You are a woman. Listen with your heart. There is nothing worse for a woman, a daughter, a wife, a mother.' than to take her home from her where her children first woke and walked and where where my husband died, where my own mother died, where every glass, every cupboard has my fingerprints. My house is my memory, Mary, my life. For all that remains wholly within you, do not take it from me. Mary walked forward and took Barbara's old hands in her own cold ones. "'Am I a woman to you, mother?' she asked, lowering her head slightly, with genuine curiosity. "'For I am none to myself. "'I grieve for your loss. "'I grieve for you and your memories. "'And also that I shall never once experience such a loss as yours.' (laughs) THE LOSS OF A FAIR HOME, AND GOOD MEMORIES, FOR MY HOME WAS TAKEN FROM ME WHEN I WAS YOUNG, AND THOUGH IT HELD FEW GOOD MEMORIES, IT WAS MINE, AND I LEARNED IN THE YEARS OF MY EXILE, MARY PLACED HER HEAD AGAINST THE OLD WOMAN'S FOREHEAD, WHAT IT WAS TO MOURN THE LOSS OF EVEN THE POOREST SHELTER. SHE KISSED THE OLD WOMAN'S HAND. NO, GO INSIDE. Dry your eyes, and gather your things. Mary took Barbara by the hand, and led her up the steps. Come, let me help you. And they wandered from room to room. And Barbara touched all the objects of her history, and pleaded tearfully for Mary to take good care of them, and agonized over what she should take and what she must leave behind. And eventually, the deputies packed as much as they could into a cart. Barbara stood on the threshold of the front door, and wept as agonizingly as a girl searching for the lost head of a broken doll. And then she climbed into the cart, and a horse was brought, and Orson Andrews drove her away. And she looked through wet eyes wild with loss as Mary stood alone on the front steps and then lowered her white head as Mary turned, went inside the darkness of the great mansion and closed the doors. Chapter 63 Double Jeopardy The white balcony reflected the glare of the sun. Mary squinted as she sipped her tea. Her cup was steady in her hand, and as she gazed at it, she wondered if it was the same one Lady Barbara had handed her all those months ago when she had staggered out of the wilderness and into this house. Even then, I was prepared to... Two, But she could not finish the thought. Something deep, old, and venomous snaked up from her bowels and sent the teacup, shivering off the saucer. As it fell, Mary twisted her foot to block the fall, and the cup glanced off and rolled off into a mossy corner. Mary sighed as the water scalded her toes. Something cold and lonely passed a corridor of her heart, keening softly for a tender touch. She watched it silently, hidden in her walls, until it trailed its arms around a distant corridor, and then raised her eyes to the outside world. The sun struck her face, then her eyes seemed to fall back into her head. "'and she had the distinct impression that her skin was burning, peeling, "'and that she could spit her eyes out through her mouth. "'Her skin flew away in a flutter, and she opened her eyes "'and saw a cuckoo that had landed on the white parapet. "'Her lips drew back. "'I will not take this consequence!' she hissed. "'You do it all the time. Take over the nest. "'Nature, you are too harsh!' "'What was I supposed to do?' "'Oh, <laughs> they are bl- blind to me. "'I was caged. "'What rules should apes respect in a circus?' "'I was given nothing. "'Let there be no limits to what I shall take. "'No rules gave him this house. "'Rules only kept at his, "'until I came along <laughs> the beacon for the beaten. "'And I have done more to earn this house than he... "'I am a warrior, as his ancestors were. "'They took with their swords, I with my tongue. "'Who is more gentle, who? "'His blood cut down begging children for this home. "'I have raised not one finger to make it mine. "'You gods did nothing to stop his fathers. "'You grow him straight and so sincere, "'close to your damned bosoms, "'and shower him with fine scent and blind books "'and fat eyes and Italy. He is your son because he won. Well, now I have won. Take me as your daughter. I have earned some goddamn family. There was a cough from the French doors. Mary's face fell like a latch into place. Two men to see you, said Joyce. Send them up. Two men came out to the balcony. They were dressed quite well, but travel-stained, and all Mary's nerves flew from her skin like flying cobwebs of twisting snakes, trying to wrap them to discover their pores and secret bones. She recognized this as a sign of grave danger, and so let it happen, and watched. "'Good morning, Mayor O'Donnell,' said one of the men. He was in his early forties with low dark hair, a slightly paunchy face, and thick lips. He had an air of patient pragmatism. He swept his wide hat off and bowed. No balding, Mary noted. The other man was the same age, but almost bald. He had a slender, straight nose, even features, high cheekbones, a wide jaw, and a mole on his chin, left of centre. He was taller, well built, with a slightly thick middle, "'Good day.' "'Good day,' said the bald man. He had a slight tenor twang to an otherwise deep and pleasant voice. His accent was untraceable. "'Good day, sirs,' said Mary. "'We can be out or in, but since it looks as if you have been out a lot, in may be better.' "'Nay, we'll sit here,' said the dark-haired one. "'We are out because we like it out, eh, Stephen?' "'That is true,' said the bald man with a smile." "'A drink, then?' asked Mary. "'Some water,' they said together. Oddly, they did not seem to notice their simultaneous speech. Water was brought, and they all sat. The bald man nudged the teacup in the mossy corner to him with his foot, and handed it to Mary. "'We've never done a woman before,' said the Dark One. They both held their pinkies out while sipping, then placed their glasses at their feet." ''So how do you like your new position?'' he asked. Stephen said, ''Sorry, we're so used to each other. I am Stephen Leaking. This is my brother Jack.'' ''Twins,'' said Mary. They both nodded. ''I am very happy here.'' ''That is well,'' said Jack, ''since this may be a cause for historical interest in time, England's first lady mayor.'' Stephen smiled. ''Many counties are going over their charters to to ensure that cannot happen there, but you at least have won your own nest. Remarkable.'' "'We were just talking. Our wives, too.' "'Joan of Arc at the ballot,' she says. "'And about time, mine. "'And she's not the only one. "'Many rough men sleep light these days.' (laughs) "'He smiled pleasantly. (laughs) "'From fear of women and desire for France.' "'Jack took another sip. "'Have you ever been?' "'Mary shook her head, reeling in her nets. "'France, well-dressed. "'Are they revolutionaries trying to recruit me?' "'I wouldn't go now, regardless of my sympathies,' said Stephen. "'Me neither.' "'added his brother. "'You'd have no idea how to find your side, "'and less chance making it to them alive. "'Civil war is the marriage of ambition "'and overcrowding and starvation, "'but the king, or food now, neither, "'and the replacements, well, beyond awful. "'What would words mean? "'I mean, a vow when you're starving. "'Who can eat words? "'To die with honour is to eat your fill in heaven. "'Ah, if you had children, right is right, "'blood is right, unempirical for me, "'and so I stand, as you please.' Mary's wild caution was not relaxed by the fact that both men carried on the above rapid conversation without taking their eyes off her. And you? asked Stephen, leaning forward. Well, said Mary, stretching, I've never been to France, and don't read newspapers. But people talk, said Jack. Everyone hears stories. As one does about ghosts, replied Mary. Yet still I sleep, soundly. "'I take it this is official business?' Stephen smiled. "'Guess.' "'You are magistrates, "'and are here to sniff me out for treason.' "'They both laughed. (laughs) "'Tell, please,' said Jack. "'Your tans are lower than your hair. "'Well, not yours, for you have so little. "'So you wear your wigs when you go to market "'in the hopes of intimidating merchants "'into cheaper prices. "'And treason?' "'I am a woman born poor.' "'standing in a mansion in control of all the lands, you see. "'Of course you are worried. "'You want me to take an oath, "'which is uncommon enough for a rural mayor, "'so speak.' Stephen laughed. (laughs) "'I told you we shouldn't have got these weird magistrates "'in search of treason tattoos on our foreheads. "'Only your forehead is big enough for that, please,' "'said Mary, holding up her hands. "'If you display any more joviality, "'I shall vomit on your laps. "'Treason... "'Carries the death sentence, yes?' "'Yes,' replied Jack. "'But these days, with France and all, "'there is torture as well. "'So let us be serious.' "'You are right. "'Please excuse my brother. "'Serious!' "'They both nodded. "'Yes.' "'What do you want to know?' "'The questioning which followed "'alternated between the brothers. "'Are you loyal to the king?' "'Yes.' Do you seek any material, economic, or political change in the realm? Mary squinted. I am confused. Does this include charity, living in this house, and being a female mayor? The twins frowned, but continued looking at each other. It was as if their ears were silently conversing. We rephrase. Do you seek any material, economic, or political change in the realm outside what is legal? No, I was elected by law. I do not now, or have I ever counseled any action or belief contradicted by law? Do you believe in the divine right of kings? I do. So you will state that the power of our king is granted by God himself, and that the king is God's representative on earth? I will not. There was a pause. Why not? Because there are kings in Germany, Holland, Denmark, and many other countries, and I would not wish to deny their rights of ruling according to divine law. Of course, England, then. Mary nodded. I do affirm that the king's legitimacy in England is derived from divine authority. Do you grant that? May we have some more water? We usually talk most during these interviews. More water was brought. Thank you. Do you grant that the king is the legitimate head of the Church of England? Yes. Do you forswear and reject any doctrines of the Catholic faith? In so far as these are incompatible, with the doctrines of the Church of England, yes. I cannot claim absolute knowledge of all such doctrines. They do change. As such, you reject the authority of the Pope in Rome. I do not. Speak. Since the Pope anoints many European kings, whose rule is legitimate by divine law. Yes, sorry. The authority of the Pope in England. Mary smiled. I will not make the obvious comment that there is no Pope in England and say that, yes, I reject the authority of the Pope in Rome, in England. Thanks for saying that Rome is not in England. You're welcome. So, you recognize that the King has a legitimate authority over his subjects, including you, whose souls would be damned should they disobey him? I do not. Speak. There are charters the King may not overturn, the Magna Carta being the first, and this natural law would forbid the obeying of edicts contradictory to established charters. "'Were the king to publish legal commands, can you conceive of a time when you would disobey them?' "'No. Please, take your time. While we do not think it a trick, we have lost before, because a man answered so quickly he claimed that he had given himself no time to conceive of any circumstances under which he would disobey the king.' Mary paused, searching the bright white stone of the parapet. The cuckoo was long gone. "'Yes.' I can conceive of disobeying the king. Example, if the king sent me a missive, asking me to do something not in my power, I would of course disobey. Example, to square a circle, or make two plus two equal five. This is unreasonable. Not if the king has lost his reason. If the king were indisputably in possession of his reason, would you ever disobey an edict of his? Yes. Speak. Were I in doubt as to the legitimacy of the edict, were I to receive a missive instructing me to slay a newborn infant, which would clearly be illegal under most circumstances, unless he were the Antichrist or contained a bomb or was a usurper to a legitimate throne, I would disobey the edict until I was able to verify its source, All right. We paint the following scenario. The king stands in front of you and orders in good faith you to perform a legal action. Can you think of any circumstances under which you would disobey him? Due to the divine right of kings, I would no more disobey him than I would God himself. Do you believe in God? Mary smiled. You have no authority to ask that question. That is a matter for an ecumenical council. We represent the king who is the head of the church, and as such may ask me any question regarding civil matters of faith. As to the faith itself... That is a matter between myself, the church, and God himself. Or herself, it would seem. Yet, if you do not believe in God, the divine right of kings means nothing. Mary nodded. That is so. And so, gentlemen, you have three choices. You can leave me be, or drag me, before an ecumenical council and question my faith. But you and I both know that this would be a very public event, full of press and popular opinion, And the small skill I have shown here is but a taste of what I would reply in open court. I shall need no Plato for my apology, for I shall make the front page. Finally, Stephen and Jack glanced at each other. What is the third course? Mary stood. (laughs) Why, to kill me quietly, of course. She smiled. I know what I would do if I were in your shoes. Chapter 64 Lunch with Lydia Cruelty orbits carelessness, never touching, never escaping. Lawrence spent another sleepless night groping with cold fingers the hard, black wound within him. The words he had spoken to Kay whirled around him. He could neither condone nor condemn them. The comprehensibility of motives in any interaction are only as clear to all as they are to the most blind. Strange rage is birthed by someone who acts clearly against our interests and then seems hurt and surprised when we get angry. They hit us, then hold a child up in defense. Kay has no idea what she is doing, thought Lawrence, and this idea was terrifying. Then... What is she doing? He felt he were involved in some sort of invisible chess game with hidden rules and fiery traps. Like most men accustomed to power, his impulse was twofold. First, he wanted to flee to more primitive territory, where unseen complications could burst like cobwebs before the strong wind of virile action. Equally strongly, he felt the paralysis of his powerful will facing true depth for the first time. Some enemies enter our lives who can only be fought by our being who we are most simply, most deeply. All the various hooks our vanity throws overboard, all we think we need to justify ourselves, fame, desirability, wealth, all the endless accolades of unseen eyes. Ah, here is where we are most vulnerable. Here is where a fish large enough, a primitive shark with deep tongue and sharp eyes. Here we feel a bite and begin to reel our rods and are pulled overboard and fall into the deep tide as the fins circle and close. When it feels as if life is going to swallow us whole, that we are going to lose our very selves, that we are going to dissolve into water so deep we are like sugar cubes in a tart and endless sea, when everything in us struggles wildly against the unacceptable, when we feel I will give up anything but that, why, that is precisely what is required." Lawrence was conspicuous, generous, active, intelligent, and idealistic. And so was a magnet for certain devils who spied the cave of a strong heart and wanted to feed on its power, just a little, just to dip their little red tongues in his wide arterial rivers but found that each sip was such ambrosia, such a heady relief from their endless hunger that they could not refrain from sucking, biting, ripping, chewing. Lawrence soon experienced admiration and deference as a kind of famished murder, and could not reach through his own ribs to dislodge his voracious parasites. "'I invited them in,' he thought over and over, "'and I do not know the words to dislodge them.' And it came to Lawrence in that moment that he, in fact, had no friends. And this seemed both such a surprising and fully formed idea that he could not discern its origin. Well, I was always so serious, he thought, and detected an elusive thread of vanity below that. He had had roommates at university and become quite jovial with them, but a certain reserve had always fallen between them. He was very studious, and he thought, in hindsight, that rebuffing drinking expeditions in favour of writing essays was probably seen as very snobby. Great! I am a snob among aristocrats. He had never been troubled by loneliness, but it swooped on him now, and carried him off in its
1: claws.
0: (sighs) I wish to be a foul-weather friend, an odd bird who contacts only for comfort. His father had been the same way, indicating by many a word and gesture that friendship involved far too many compromises to be seriously considered by a man of integrity, and had died surrounded by women. Died, surrounded by women. The phrase made Lawrence a little nauseous, and he swung his legs over the bed and leaned forward, pressing his palms against his temples, his elbows on his knees. From this angle he could see a slight paunch pressing against the tie of his pyjama bottoms and pinched it in disgust. Yet what do I really think of women? His mother Kay, Mary, and Lydia, his only close contacts. His mother, inflexible, insistent, impenetrable. Kay, needy, oddly aggressive, random. Mary, biblical, absolute, haranguing. And Lydia, graceful, soft-spoken, courageous. What kind of company have I been keeping? The bond of family was so deep within him that it had never been questioned. Do I consider myself a revolutionary? I've questioned history, aristocracy, the peasantry, God, country and king, yet never the women in my life. But where would I even begin? When any step is taken in the direction of first principles, there is no stopping the gathering momentum that starts with things distant and largely hypothetical society, religion, economics, and philosophy and ends up sweeping with grim momentum into all close habits and associations. Reject the existence of God, and sooner or later one becomes an atheist in all things, and faith in the unseen, in family, Culture, history, and self will be washed away. And when true sight escapes the vanity of self-deception, it becomes a bright light that burns in all directions. How much do I really know about those I claim to love? This is a chilling question. Even more chilling is, How much do those who claim to love me know about me? All these, of course, are merely ghostly precursors to the most terrible demon, the demon whose eyes burn to set us free. How much do I know about myself? The answer to Lawrence in the first grey of pre-dawn was, Never enough, never enough. Never enough. The devils have arrived to set me free, thought Lawrence over and over as he closed his eyes, and the bed felt full of imps. Finally, he rose and went to see Lydia. He walked, since he knew she rose late, tired from performing. He paused in front of her home, dreading the sight of her father, then wandered over to a cafe across the street and paid a small boy to deliver a note to Lydia. The boy looked at him with curious disgust, imagining him the laziest thing on two legs for paying him to cross the road with a piece of paper. Lawrence read The Times in a desultory fashion. There was much rage and fear about the reign of terror in France and subscriptions were being levied on landowners to pay for English troops to fight the Republicans. Another bill, he thought dismally. Lydia arrived after about half an hour. Lawrence had had enough coffee to feel like a narcoleptic on a tightrope. She looked at his haggard face for a moment, cocking her head. You know, you do have leave to call on me at the house, she said softly. "'Yes, I know,' replied Lawrence. He frowned, then stood and held her chair out while she sat. "'A little primly,' he thought. "'You look lovely this morning,' he said, sitting. She smiled. "'I hope it is not evidence of my pathetic desire to see you that I rushed out so quickly.' "'No, I was quite surprised. I made lunch reservations. I was prepared to wait all day.' "'You are a man with a mission,' said Lydia.' Signalling for the waiter and ordering a coffee and croissant. "'They say you should not eat croissants, "'but rather rub them directly into your thighs. "'Well, thanks for that picture.' "'She smiled. "'Perhaps I should order jam and butter as well. "'Oh, Lydia, it is both good and heartbreaking to see you. "'All right, the good I understand, "'and wait in patience for the heartbreaking part.' There was a flicker of nervousness in her eyes, and he could read her thoughts. I think I know you, but I have been fooled before. "'What do you think of Mary O'Donnell?' he asked suddenly. "'Well, that's a wakey-wakey question. Begging your pardon, which I do rarely enough, I loathe her.' Lawrence blinked. "'You do not love your enemies?' That is a philosophy designed to make you indifferent to your allies, and I despise it, too. Sorry to be so negative. No, no more coffee for you, if you want to think straight. He lowered his arm and smiled. Who gives you orders? Lord, everyone, it seems. My father, my director, my singing teacher, my tutors. She plucked something off her sleeve. You, if you like. Sorry. Loathe. Such a strong word. Well, what do you loathe? Being told what to do doesn't count. He wrinkled his nose. Loathe? I don't think... It's like... It's... It's so close to hatred. Which is bad? Well, now I'm in a bind. No, you're not. Speak plain. I suppose to see how we are all one means that to see differences... TO FEEL THREATENED BY THEM IS TO SEE GAPS WHERE IN FACT THEY do NOT EXIST, To, to, TO FALL INTO HATRED WHERE WE SHOULD FEEL EMPATHY. IF SOMEONE HURT YOU, AND YOU DID NOT DESERVE IT, SAID LYDIA EVENLY, I WOULD KILL THEM AND SING MY WAY TO THE SCAFFOLD. NOW, THAT'S UNFAIR, CRIED LAWRENCE. THIS ISN'T ABOUT PASSION. YOU ASK A QUESTION FROM THE HEAD, THEN INTERRUPT WITH AN ANSWER FROM THE HEART. YOU'RE RIGHT. I APOLOGIZE. Tell me more about hatred. What is it? Hatred is is fear of the unknown, or or the over-familiar, but threatening. Lydia tore off a strip of crust. Give me an example in your own life. Ask Kay, he thought, but could not step there. Well, I don't really hate anyone. So you have no fear of the unknown, or repugnance of the familiar? Not that I know of. What about anger? Sure, I've been angry when last last night that's too relevant to what i've talked about but i suppose like any son my mother angers me at times when i'm impatient lydia raised her brows shook her head and half smiled well your mother could do it she can be inflexible but but she means well said lawrence in the mechanical tone of an old justification here is a man who does not know women? thought Lydia. How do you know she means well? Mother? Mary? Let's start with your mummy. Sorry, mother. She always has our best interests at heart. Lydia clacked her coffee spoon on the table like a judge. Tautology? Please rephrase. Lawrence paused. She has made many sacrifices. How would that qualify as a virtue? Well, To sacrifice, someone chooses to sacrifice, that's their business. If they sacrifice because it is of value to them, they need no repayment. If not, no one else is responsible for making it valuable. Besides, this is your mother's philosophy, and so not valid as a yardstick of her moral virtue. Lawrence frowned. Do you loathe my mother as well? Now you answer with the heart. We are asking with the head. All right. How do you know it is my mother's philosophy? "'Larry, who sacrifices themselves to you?' The question fell like a slab of plaster on his head. There was a pause. He scratched his head and glanced upwards. "'Should I sacrifice myself to you?' she persisted. "'Give up my singing, my family, my education, everything I cherish. "'God, no! That's what attracted me to—' "'No!' I cannot believe it is true. Excuse me, he said as they drew stairs. Lydia's cheeks reddened. I know, it's the coffee talking. Forget sacrifice, let's talk about consistency. And here's where the crossing gets rough, Magellan. If sacrifice is a moral virtue, then... Oh, I wish someone else were telling you this. You might want to please me in accepting it. No, I I trust your integrity, which is why... I am questioning it. Fight me with everything in your power. If sacrifice is a virtue, then who do you ask to sacrifice themselves to you? Well, cried Lawrence with more than a touch of disdain. (laughs) I don't really need to— He paused. To what? asked Lydia, and he noticed that she spoke with her mouth full, which indicated deep passion. To to ask for sacrifice? Why not? I am— I, what would I need? Well, that would seem weak. So, asking for a sacrifice is only a value for the weak. It would seem so, my songstress Socrates. Now, the question is, do they require more sacrifice because they are weak, or are they weak because they require sacrifice? Well, I, I don't know exactly... "'What this weakness is? "'I haven't really considered it before, "'so so consider it, if you like,' "'she added demurely and unconvincingly. "'Weakness,' murmured Lawrence, "'his head humming with the word friend, "'and an almost unbelievable upsurge of sexual desire. "'He drew the edge of the tablecloth over his lap, "'noticing Lydia's smile.' I suppose it would seem to be a lack of purpose., oh, there's that blindness to the feminine again, thought Lydia, so all who lack purpose are weak sure let's let's try that. A man who drifts through life seeking pleasure alone. <laughs> no, that doesn't work because pleasure is his goal. Allied Jonathan, a man who drifts around on any current is weak, yes, that is a kind of weakness. Suppose this man were poor. Well, how would he live? Lydia touched Lawrence's hand. His lack of purpose would have to be subsidized by something. To consume, we have to produce. And if we don't, then someone else must, or we die. So he becomes a thief. That's one possibility. What, what else could he do? He could persuade others that charity is an absolute value regardless of context or responsibility. Then he can present need, not virtue, as a claim on resources. Yet we patronize artists, not one who produces nothing, or whose work we do not value. So all charity is weakness? I do not think so. Yet charity without reference to values, to to free will and responsibility, that is so lazy, it is almost cowardly. Help someone you care about because you care about them, but to run around finding victims to save, I cannot consider that virtuous. Why not? Because because that makes need the highest virtue, higher than strength or, or, or the power to provide. Since weakness needs strength, but strength does not need weakness, weakness must be a subordinate value to strength. It's like building a pyramid point down. By that reasoning, gazelle are superior to lions, because lions need them, but gazelle do not need lions. But the lions, Larry, do not try to convince the gazelles that their most noble goal is to lay down and let the lions eat them. The lions have to catch the gazelles, but animal metaphors are of limited value in questions of free will. Free will? Where does free will come in? Well, without free will, there can be no values since values must be chosen. Instincts are not values because animals cannot choose to reject them. Values can only be established in reference to purpose. And the purpose of all living things is to stay alive. That is why those without a tangible purpose seem weak. It is not because they have no purpose, but rather that their purpose is the subjugation of others. They offer up their weakness in exchange for power. Lawrence started. What? Lydia's eyes narrowed. "'Tell me, did not Mary's offer of helping the poor "'arouse the slightest vanity in you?' "'They are weak. That is what is cried out. "'You can help them, and so you are strong. "'And do we not all want that thrill of strength, "'however false it might be?' "'Lawrence stared at her. "'You asked me why I loathe Mary, Larry. "'Is that the first time she used Larry?' he wondered." "'Everyone has the choice. Own their own lives or blame others. "'She chose the latter. She is trying to get me to help others.' "'There was a contradiction inherent in her position, "'but we shan't get to it today. "'All I ask is that you consider her position as if she were a man. "'That is all.' "'She smiled. "'I don't want to spend the whole morning philosophizing when we could be kissing.' So, Mr. Mission Man, let's dispense with what is on your mind so we can retire to a carriage and you can ravish my lips. The disasters of the past few days had fled his mind on the bright wind of considered ideas, but now they rolled back in like the breath of a fetid swamp. Oh, Lydia, I have displeased your father terribly. She took a short breath and touched her throat. Oh? and it is about to get a lot worse. Lydia stared at him blankly, and Lawrence suddenly felt that loving a woman so deeply in love with her father was terribly exciting and terribly dangerous. He passed his hand over his eyes and told her the story of Kay, Adam, the factory, and the ruin of his finances her coffee, cooled, untouched, in front of her. Chapter 65. The Last Feast. Mary had been as intimately involved with food as only someone who was nearly starved can be. Countless times during her wanderings, she had conjured such fantasy feasts as she was now able to provide. Gathering her servants together, she wound them into a fever of excitement, planning what she called the first and last supper. They sat in the servants' quarters and had uproarious fights about what should be served, how it should be prepared, and the order in which it should be presented. Their initial fear of Mary was banished to lurk in the dark wine cellars of the mansion as they laughed around the large, scarred oaken table, conjuring fantastic, improbable dishes such as duck a la goose, Crenoline pudding, inside-out cake, and the enigmatic yet popular banana surprise, which was widely regarded as best served with two crab apples at the root. A real banana was produced, and an old washerwoman's demonstration of the best way to eat it made them laugh so hard they thought their eyes would explode. Finally, they narrowed the list down to foods, which could be both actually prepared and pleasantly consumed, then took the list into town to get the right ingredients. Since Mary was planning on inviting her newly released paupers as well as the loom factory workers, she also had to eliminate several dishes she considered too rich for their stomachs. The provisions were bought, the town invited, and there was great anticipation regarding the event. When, however, it was found out that the new poor were going to be there, enthusiasm in some quarters vanished. This had been a prosperous village for some years now, and the villagers tended to associate poverty with bad morals, forgetting their own initial resistance to Lawrence's reforms. Of course, Christian charity warred with a distaste for her idle vagabondage, but... In general, the sentiment could be vaguely stirred by fallen women with children or old men with absent limbs or eyes, but able-bodied and shifty-eyed men did not find the gardens of human sympathy open for their wanderings. Respectable women quickly made their distaste for Mary's feast clear, and they were quickly followed by less respectable women who hoped to gain the respect of the more respectable women by imitating their disdain. Husbands of both sorts quickly followed suit, the young men of the village, save for a priggish few, did not share this view, and covered their evident interest in being in the proximity of fallen women through chest puffing displays of concern for the poor folk up the way. In the grim gathering of lean tos and single board huts where those released from the poorhouse by Mary had gathered, a dim Shadow of interest rolled through the slack jaws and drink-sodden fists and roomy, sleepless eyes. Like any with money but no purpose, they wanted for nothing but their own souls. Being sort of soulless, they were keen on sensation, perhaps in the metaphorical belief that an empty house can be filled by external flames. So they jeered and waited and toasted their indifference— with other men's wine. This is not to say that they were corrupt. In the maze of morality, we can see precious little. The soul holds too many secrets for us to judge the path from innocence to evil. This man is evil? Was he undone in his crib, or was gin mixed with his mother's milk? Who can track the unlighted paths of choice? and circumstance. Crimes committed against children dwarf the crimes committed against adults, and it could be that our social world orbits the blank, vengeful sons of violated childhoods. They are the awful orbs which rise and set on our entire tapestry of law, religion, and custom. They are the hidden physics of our lost world. Is a man a brute? because he is poor or does some devil in him reduce him to poverty in order to free its talons from the prison of self-restraint a woman corners herself in poverty and strikes out of the world does she trap herself to liberate her striking give a poor woman money it often falls from her like green water from a duck's back and only adds to the loss she claims as her right of vengeance clear reason does not light these warrens. It shows more of our own hopes and fears than any other soul. What remedy has nature provided us for essential justice? The judging of causes, not effects. Upright conduct and wide noses, it would seem. To be moral oneself and sniff deeply into the motives of others, deep ethics are essential instincts. To be fooled by evil, to be dragged backwards into a pit of adult abuse often occurs because we feel tainted by evil and so are afraid to sniff, to feel it out. Certainty is the true child of disciplined instincts. The histories of the poor who lay sodden on the foreign shore of plenty could not be traced by mortal man. Some were mentally ill. Was that pure chemical mayhem or the sudden snap of bad habits? Just as a dissolute man can turn from uneasy health to decrepitude almost overnight, so it may be that neurosis can turn to raving if too long untended. Regardless, there were some who had no real control over their actions some also who had strong spines but had fallen under the combined dominoes of misfortune, of chances which seemed almost coordinated by ill-will, like the pounding flurry of a boxer who no longer hears the referee. These unhappy few must be granted all sympathy and support. There were also the indifferent, the irresponsible, the vengeful, the impulsive, addictive, self-loathing, the fatalists, the altruist extremists who gave all away, including themselves, and the evil, of course. Even if we do not grant that all the aforementioned categories are not halting steps towards the darkest destination, those who were truly evil did lie scattered like black spots on a washed-out negative of the night sky. And that kind of virulence has no choice but to spread. Evil must believe its own night is inevitable, so it must lure those on the brink and flee those firmly in the light. There were very few in the poorhouse firmly in the light, so these kinds of poor were herded sheep in a ring of wolves. Those unable to become wolves became bald, chewed meat. So it was, overall. A rather dark tide which flowed to Mary's feast that fateful night. The majority of those who trudged on broken legs to their last feast would have gone, even if they knew what smoking secrets the dawn would reveal. For evil does not want death, it wants to make death live. So it kills the living, but keeps them walking. The mansion was ablaze with light. It could be seen for miles. And every fire was crammed with logs to a near inferno level. The first to arrive, as the sun hissed like a burning orb into the distant sea, glanced at each other in dark glee, the glow of the manor reflected in the balls of their sunken eyes. Their nerves yearned for sensual relief, and the closing fires boded well. Mary stood on the front steps, holding her hands out as the ragged procession reached her feet. Eat till your stomachs rebel, drink until your livers flee, she cried, and a cheer arose from the throng. They surged up the steps and through the front doors, then stopped in amazement. Their eyes were met by sheer dazzle by countless lamps and candles and deep fires, by a million points and swaths of light which raced from shiny vases to oiled paintings to constellations of chandeliers. The glossy wood, the terracotta archways, the bright paint all glowed with a light so diverse it admitted no shadows. Their jaws fell slowly. Slowly. It was as if a celestial painter had opened their skulls and applied a portrait of their heavenly home directly to the roots of their eyes. They entered silently, and all dark hearts scurried to the bases of their respective spines in shock at such beauty, scurried and plotted, awaiting their turn. The maids handed out masks, found in a deep cellar from some forgotten ball, And they were placed on lank and oily heads, and the light so filled the masks that it spilled over into the periphery and all became dazzled and lost to their histories. Food filled the house. Pastries and ducks and roasts and pheasants and sweetbreads and great bowls of butter and cream, and there were no plates, but they would have been useless anyway, because food was grabbed and stuffed and combined in an unholy manner and stuck on pokers and thrust into the flames and thrown and smeared on breasts, male and female, and it was all different from the first time the poor fed all those months ago, because then there was an animal desperation, but now it was a loose form of sensuality that rolled through the crowd like a great and greasy child at play. A piano player was found, and in the general rummaging, fiddles were found, and people slap-drummed the heads of laughing bald men, and licked each other's cheeks, and in the final room, the drink was found. And the crush became so great that the glass wall leading to the greenhouse cracked, but held. The cuts were minor. And the drink was grabbed, and passed, and dropped, and scrambled for, and the room was amazing." The cracked wall of glass reflected the roaring fire like the burning spears of evil fairies, and a great energy seemed to enter the mansion, fighting past the heat of the chimneys and leaping over the flames. Mary listened to the roar of the party. Not a single word could be discerned from the wide wall of white revel noise, but she felt her skin ablaze with rampart power. "'and her ravaging mind seemed quiet at last. "'And she even had a glass of wine "'and watched chanting men tipping wine, beer and champagne "'into an enormous Ming vase "'and then grab others and hold them down "'while four men poured the liquor swamp down their throats. "'And once they lost their grip "'and the vase fell on the face of a man "'and he sprang up and spat a mouthful of teeth into his hand "'and hurled them at a cake so hard.' They disappeared like red bullets deep into the icing. Another couple copulating in a corner pulled a tapestry off a wall to cover themselves, and the end trailed in the forge of a fire, but others stomped out the blaze and pulled the tapestry from the couple and cheered the man's thrusting buttocks in low guttural growls. And fights erupted and ebbed and songs flashed through the crowd as the musicians played familiar strains and all the old Greek gods lived again in the wild, heaving crowds. Finally, long past midnight, Mary stood on an inner balcony overlooking the crowd and drew forth a pistol. She gazed at it for a moment, smiling at the flames dancing up its oiled, barrel then she aimed it at a broken window and fired into the night the explosion dwarfed the cries and music of the revelers and their senses tuned to a fever pitch they turned to cheer mary occasionally calling for her to jump and then trailed off so complete was the power of mary's presence from on high brothers and sisters she cried. Tonight we inhabit this great house built on the blood of our ancestors. Tonight the flow of life is reversed. Tonight we take back the bricks laid on the bones of our fathers. A cheer and a pause. Tonight there are no rich, no poor, no men or women, no lords and ladies and peasants, no believers and faithless. Tonight... We are all equal in the eyes of the goddess. Tonight the rule of law, the law that has lain our lords high and our own hides low, tonight that law holds no sway. Tonight those with possessions give way to those possessed. Another cheer. For possessions mean nothing. What joy is kept in these gilded cages? What point in property except to divide brother and brother? "'Now preaching!' shouted a man. Someone burped low and loud. "'You think I preach!' shouted Mary, raising a small bag in one hand and pointing at it with her pistol. "'You think I preach, not practice! "'Oh, my brothers and sisters, do you want possessions?' An uncertain ripple of noise wandered through the crowd. "'Do you want to become those we despise?' Some of the crowd eyed Mary's pistol, and befuddled senses, struggled to awake. To own possessions is to be possessed, but if I read your greedy eyes aright, you who have adapted to poverty are tempted to adapt to wealth. Do you wish that, my brothers? Do you wish to adapt to the station of those who have destroyed us? Do you wish wealth, my friends, for I hold it in my hands and it means nothing to me? Wealth, money, cried the crowd. Give us what we want. Do you wish all the wealth I have to offer? Jump, drink, wealth, money. As one voice, shouted Mary, yes or lose. Do you wish all the wealth I have in my hands? Yes, screamed the crowd. A final time, shall I make you... "'As rich as myself!' "'Yes!' "'Then take it!' "'She screamed and spun her arm in a wide arc, "'sending a thick scatter of small paper into the air. "'There was a great hush in the crowd, "'and the fire popped loudly. "'The heat was so great from the furnaces "'that the papers held aloft for a moment.' like a wild flock of hunting angels. And then they slipped through the hot fingers of the rising air and fluttered down to the outstretched hands of the waiting crowd, and the papers were grabbed and examined, and it became a great and terrible game. Most of the assembled could not read, and the jostling was great, and the light uncertain, but knowledge of the size and scope of the banknotes began to spread like wildfire, And even those who did not know the meaning of the money were led by the greed of their neighbors and grabbed at the notes, and where they were torn there were brutal fights, and where the notes went into the fires there were burnt scrabbling hands and pitiful screams, and all dark old devils were loosed on the crowd, and loyalty and historical travels were utterly sundered, and those with one or two notes stood uncertain whether to gather more or flee, and were torn down by their brethren, and those who tried to edge their way out, were also brought down, and clothes were torn, and fingers and eyes were broken, and the others in the rest of the house hurled themselves into the room, drawn like moths to the oldest fires of human greed, and the glass wall gave way and shattered, and broken glass spun through the grasping fingers, and the fight surged against the fire and loosed it from its foundations, and it stalked forward on bright, famished legs to consume paper and persons as one. Far out on the road, Lawrence drew his horse up short, seeing an odd glow in the distance. Home is so deeply ingrained in our bones that we really need no prompting to know when it is in danger. Lawrence, normally a very kind horseman, drove his spurs deep into his beast's side and they flew over the night lands like a ghost trading the scent of its murderer. Mary did not know he was coming, of course. She was extraordinarily sensitive, and her sensitivity had been driven underground by cruelty, and thus strengthened, but she was not able to foretell the future. Indeed, she would have been indignant at the suggestion, perceiving it as an insult to her titanic will. But having travelled many hard years to achieve her aims, having hidden her intentions these many months, and a little sickened by the necessity of the fiery carnage within, She walked out the front steps, away from the cries, flames, and smoke. She descended the steps in a great state of relaxation, as fire curled its transient fingers up from almost every window, and black-faced people staggered from the house around her, and some dropped from the windows in blind panic, and occasionally a horrifying man-shaped column of flame could be seen inside, and sometimes this column was red, sometimes it snuffed into agonizing smoke, the flames ate cloth and dug into flesh, sometimes it was blue, which was the color of a burning man with a great quantity of alcohol soaked into his clothing. Some staggered past Mary and fell on the lawn, smoking, groaning, and mothers fell on them and bit their fingers open, looking for a banknote, and here and there friends guarded or supported the falling or limping, and this was a sight terrible to see, because we rarely see the sea of evil until it begins pulling down good sailors. And what was the state of Mary's mind when she saw those caught in her web? There was an attempt to summon a noble warrior compassion for those fallen on a field of battle, but the effect was largely fleeting. Her devil was sated and withdrew all its unholy energy from her hands, and she looked at their limp purity in wonder. Odd stabs of fear struck her, and she wondered that those lost souls wandering the lawn or falling in sodden heaps did not rise up and tear her limb from limb, but supposed that they had exhausted themselves in bare animal survival and now barely knew where they were. Her head drew her neck up at the sound of flying hooves, and her devil awoke in her breast and slithered into her flaccid beating heart and spread its dark wings, eclipsing her senses once more. Lawrence's horse shied away from the low stench of boiled blood. The scene struck his senses in successive blows, firing his soul to maddened heights. In his blood was the blood of warriors. He had turned that blood to the combat of want and ignorance. It now found a more natural channel and flowed free and hard. He swung off his horse and strode forward through the darkness, through the smoke and bodies. His hands rose and sang, giddy with glee that they held no sword. He saw Mary standing on the steps and mounted them three at a time. His arms rose. He did nothing to stop them, and his fingers fastened on Mary's neck. And she did nothing to stop him, save that her eyes rose and dared him to extinguish them. He raised her off the hot flagstones and threw her against the wall. Her head struck the bricks with a brittle eggshell sound, and his heart soared. "'Where is my mother?' he shouted, advancing on her. "'Oh, Larry,' she cried thickly, raising her eyes to him. Red ran down her face as if her dark hair were weeping blood. "'I sent her away. I am not such a monster.' He leant forward, his fingers digging into her shoulders. He could feel the fragile stitching of her skeleton and yearned to tear it apart. What happened here? Her eyes widened. I, I, I had a feast as, 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 as you did. My home is in flames. What have you done? He shook her violently. Her head lolled and snapped. Forward, her hair spun and sprayed blood on his face. There was a terrible groaning release from inside the house as some level or staircase fell to the ground, and a dragon's breath shot out the front doors. Sparks blew into Lawrence's eyes, and he dropped Mary and staggered back involuntarily, crying out. She strode forward, her dress smoking. "'Everyone must adapt to you, Larry, Larry, quite contrary, mustn't they?' "'Even before you tore my home from me, "'we all had to adapt to your sunny vision of a better world. "'And we acquiesced because you were great in your power "'and feared no man or woman. "'And then a little farming man, "'a man who paid you tribute in his heart, "'and hands rose against me, "'and then your power fled before you, didn't it? "'And you bowed before him "'and suffered me to be fed into the jaws of the night, "'a child of twelve. "'Had you saved me, I would have been your slave, "'for you would have earned your power.' But as it was, I set my teeth and heart to tear into it and take it away. I, who could have been a gracious savior of the age, adapted to vengeance, though it cost me my soul. And I adapted to goodness to break your power. And now all that is left is for you to adapt, as you have forced so many others to for I have burned your home and future as surely as you burned mine, and damned we both shall be, but at least I have chosen my damnation, and not just let it be taken from my stupid hands by a poor little girl who, though poor, was rich in justice and can now die content. Lawrence stood slowly and gripped Mary's neck and stepped forward slowly and steadily into the furnace and the burning wind blew her blood, and sticky hair and slow snakes around her head, and she opened her mouth wide, and he saw her teeth, and his fingers closed tighter, and his heart seemed to erupt in black joy as her eyes bulged, and a terrible smile widened her gasping mouth. And he suddenly remembered Farmer Jigger, and paused, cocking his head to one side, and his Fingers opened slightly, and he thought of Lydia, and prison, and his mother, and Kay, and all those who depended on him, and all the blackened eyes at his back, and imagined a troop of witnesses in a wooden court, and imagined being closed in a dank cell with Mary's dancing and giggling ghost— And he strove mightily with his hands, which gripped with ape-like muscles. And he began to panic because he could not loosen his fingers. And then another black and rolling furnace exhalation blew through the open door. And he pictured dropping through a trap door into the flames his house had become. And that could be his home for eternity. And then the image of Mary naked with "'flat breasts and legs blending down into fur, "'dancing on the lip of his blazing hole "'and drinking water and wiping her lips "'and lowering food to him "'and then flicking it into the heart of the fire, "'that she would be mistress of his soul for all time, "'and then his fingers flew apart. "'And he picked up Mary's jerking and coughing frame "'and walked off the burning porch, "'and as he carried her slowly down the steps,' The roof of the porch leaned forward and fell over the spot where they both had stood. He carried Mary over to the road and placed her silent, singed body on the grass, and then walked back to the pyre of his former home and carried those in danger of its collapse a short distance, and then stood watching the flames. Sending endless sparks deep into the night sky. Chapter 66 The Twins Report Lord Serbs met Stephen and Jack in a pub of their own choosing. They ordered two pints and set them down next to each other. He knew their habits well enough to be unfazed by their habit of drinking from whichever flagon was closest. They began by giving a full report of their interview with Mary. They did not finish each other's sentences, but alternated between them with disarming fluidity. After a few minutes, Lord Serbs found himself dizzy from the natural habit of switching his gaze from one to the other and settled at looking at a small list of banned patrons nailed on the wall behind their heads. So finally she counseled that we kill her, finished Jack. Stephen took a sip of beer. Are you not drinking anything? No, thank you. It was well done, he paused. Would you say that in your combined experience she was adroit in her responses? Stephen cocked his head to the left. Jack's went to the right. Most impressive, said Stephen. Best we've interviewed, added Jack. I would be most interested in upgrading from interview to interrogation, and we would be most within our rights in doing so, given her answers, but it would be more academic than practical, for she has given up the ghost already. And would, in our view, be impervious to torture? Well, not impervious, but she would be most unpresentable afterwards. Lord Serbs frowned. I don't condone killing her, of course. Is that an admission of permission? asked Jack. Or a barrier to the exploration of that option? No. She must be allowed to live. She is powerful and subtle in her thinking. To kill her would amount to saying we have no reply to her arguments. Jack smiled but we have no reply to her arguments. At the level our questioning was cut off, all depended on her belief in God. Prompted by a sudden curiosity, Lord Serbs asked, Do we either of you believe in God? There was a short pause. Stephen smiled. Unofficially, we do not find it expedient to hold strong beliefs. Explorers go further with neither maps nor destinations, but that is neither here nor there. And do you, in fact, torture subjects? Asked Lord Serbs. Jack nodded. All relativists must fix a certain star for their navigations. Ours is loyalty to the realm. Arbitrary, but immovable. Lord Serbs nodded. And you possess the power of arrest. We share the designation of justice of the peace, and are so imbued. And do you believe that a public interview, and public it shall be, she has aroused much popular sentiment, especially among the fairer sex, you shall be able to catch her. There was another pause. Stephen finished Jack's beer. That is impossible to say. We cannot be sure the ecclesiastical council will cause her to contradict herself. In what manner? She is a most cunning unbeliever, but she wants to maintain a certain integrity in her unbelief. She will state nothing positively, so our recommended attack would be simple. The council must focus on her theological beliefs, and when they are found wanting, she will, whether she wants or no, hang high in a public sphere. However, there is a caution. We believe her answers will do much to undermine popular faith in the realm. And there will be certain members of the press who will publish her replies more because of their own revolutionary beliefs than any objective public interest, and there could be terrible repercussions. For you, since it is your desire we bring her to London and examine her publicly, Lord Serbs took a deep breath. It is my belief we shall prevail against her. There was a pause. Then it shall be as you demand, said Stephen. Jack smiled. But on your head that you demand it. Chapter 67 Mary Returns to London Lawrence found that he had to defend Mary mightily when the villagers arrived in the morning. There was a great and grim tide of rage against her, She was widely regarded as an incarnation of eternal evil, so completely had she subverted the natural order of the county. The destruction of the seat of historical power was perceived as a lynching offence, but such was the power of Lawrence's authority that she was suffered to be led away by him to the single carriage which had escaped destruction. She was placed in detention at Orson Andrews' house, where her wounds were tended to by his not unsympathetic wife. Lawrence then found out that his mother was staying at the inn and went and had a long and painful interview with her. She had already heard of the destruction of their manor, and he was full of grief in her presence. All their differences of ideology fell away in mourning the loss of their way of life and ancestral home. During their conversation, Lawrence suddenly realized that the only original copy of his father's book on the history of Eastern religions had perished in the blaze, and found himself stung with pain at the knowledge. When Father Jones arrived with the news that the poor gathered by Mary were being run out of the county, Lawrence could not rouse his sickened heart into action and was afraid to pursue the question of what had happened to those who were wounded in the fire, or the actual number of those who had perished. Father Jones sat with them for a while, ashen-faced, but lacked the courage to admit to them the extent of his involvement in the disaster, and so tried to comfort them with an awkward air of hypocritical concern. Lady Barbara was, to both men's dismay, completely undone. Her mind wandered distractedly, and she kept leaping up to go over to the few possessions she had saved before leaving, and, most often not finding what she was looking for, fell to her knees and sobbed, raising a blanket to her face, her hair wild and wandering. And watching her, Lawrence's heart slipped another rung to unguessed depths of misery. Towards evening, Lawrence was informed that two men had arrived in the village, asking for the whereabouts of Mary, and he went down to the common room to meet them. Stephen and Jack informed him of their intent to arrest Mary and take her to London for trial, and peppered Lawrence with questions as to her conduct, and quickly established the following relevant facts. 1. Mary's occupation of the Carvey Mansion was perfectly legal. 2. 2. She was not allowed to sell or destroy his property while in possession of it, but this did not include the money freely given to her by Kay. 3. The law regarding the destruction of property did not include the phrase, or cause to be destroyed, so if the revelers at her feast had themselves caused the damage, Mary could not be held legally accountable for it. 4. If all the revellers had died or been dispersed by the townspeople, Mary remained the only witness of the events of the previous night. 5. It was imperative that witnesses be produced, for if Mary had incited the riot, she could be convicted for that offence, an offence that could carry the death penalty, at the court's discretion. 6. If no witnesses could be produced, and Mary declared her loyalty to the realm and belief in God, she could not be found guilty of any crime and would be able to resume her duties as mayor. At Lawrence's protestation that the county would no longer accept her authority, Stephen and Jack remained mute, clearly indicating that such matters were beyond their concern. The twins conscripted Father Jones to scour the village and try to find any souls who remained above ground who had been part of the previous night's conflagration. Lawrence sent word to Orson Andrews to bring Mary to the village for transport to London. By late evening it became clear that all witnesses had either died, been driven off, or had wounds that placed them beyond the reach of the law. Several youths were evasive, several more were nowhere to be found. No progress was made. Mary was brought down, clad in a flowered dress of wife Andrew's, her head carefully bandaged. Stephen and Jack spoke with her briefly at the inn, then she appeared with her hands bound and her eyes covered. She was placed in Lawrence's carriage. He could not stand the prospect of riding inside and borrowed a horse for the journey to London. Stephen and Jack rode inside with Mary. The carriage entered London unobserved, but word quickly spread that the famous Mayor O'Donnell had entered the city. She was placed in the room of a nunnery. It was determined by Lord Serbs Jack and Stephen that a civil trial would be useless, so her case was handed over to the ecclesiastical authorities, and a council was set to convene as soon as possible. The Archbishop of London was out of town for several days, which allowed voluminous copy to be devoted to Mary, her cause, and history, in all the London papers. Lord Serbs was interviewed constantly, while the nuns strove to keep Mary from what they considered to be her certain doom. But Mary, still bound, did not reply to their endless exhortations to admit her faith. Lawrence kept to his room at a nondescript inn, refusing all requests for interviews, Kay came to see him, but he refused entrance even to her, which caused her great agony, since her nature naturally interpreted this as a rebuke for her role in the grim affair. She sat in the inn's common room, drinking tea and dithering about whether to wait for Larry to see her or go back home to be with her mother. She was driven from the room by reporters and decided to stay for Mary's trial, in the hopes of seeing Lawrence afterwards. CHAPTER 68. A SUDDEN REACQUAINTANCE Adam met with Squire Pounder, as requested. The good Squire had adopted a moustache, a cane, and a rather exaggerated limp to avoid recognition. Slowed by his hobble, they took some time to reach the bank. "'Now remember,' said Squire Pounder before they entered, "'I am George, "'Dawson, who has recently inherited some capital on the death of an uncle in the West Indies,' smiled Adam. "'Yes, I recall it is important for both of us.' "'I accept it with all due seriousness. "'Yet do you think the stagger quite necessary? "'A man is known by his walk,' replied Squire Pounder. "'Remember, I have more experience in business than you. "'Very well. "'Good luck to you, Mr. Dawson.' Squire Pounder grinned and pumped his hand. And to you, Mr. Footer. After waiting for some time, they were finally shown into the office of the loans officer. Adam blinked at the sight of the man behind the desk. J- Jonathan? He asked, dumbfounded. You know this man, demanded Squire Pounder. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> Stammered Adam "'It is the last thing I could have imagined, though I am sure you performed the duties of your office with great efficiency,' he added to Jonathan. "'Thank you, I am sure,' said Jonathan. "'What can I do for you, Mr. Footer?' "'Well, well, we we have come as two unassuming merchants, Mr. Footer, because at a value of a certain idea, and myself, Mr. Dawson.' Because of a recent inheritance received due to the blessed generosity of a deceased uncle, late of the West Indies This degree of detail is <laughs> quite unnecessary, interrupted Jonathan. You want a loan. Why? Well, said Adam, on the grounds of a new machine. A machine of enormous, almost unheard of productivity called a power loom, grins Jonathan. I know. Why yes. You said this was a secret said Squire Pounder, turning on Adam suddenly. Adam was pale. Well, it is, it it was. How, How do you know? He asked Jonathan. Because of your time at the Carvey's. Well, no, not really. I had no interest in business then, replied Jonathan. But I had a most enterprising group of workers in here just yesterday asking for a loan. A group of workers who used to work a factory on Lawrence's lands, run by a remarkable woman named Mavis who adopted a stable boy. "'A group of workers who, if their figures are any indication, "'will present you with stiff competition?' "'Thieves!' cried Adam. "'Perhaps,' smiled Jonathan, "'but very productive thieves.' "'Did you grant them a loan?' "'asked Squire Pounder, wiping his brow. "'Well, that is privileged information, of course,' replied Jonathan. "'Yet I can say that if your figures match theirs, "'you stand a good chance. "'It will do the bank good to have two companies in this industry. "'Makes everyone more efficient.' "'We can do better than them,' said Squire Pounder confidently. "'We have contacts overseas.' "'That is certainly of value,' admitted Jonathan, leaning back in his chair and clasping his hands behind his head. "'Now, the floor is yours,' he smiled. "'Convince me.' Chapter 69 The Examination the morning of the examination dawned bright and clear. A hard rain had been falling all night, and London received the light of sunrise with all the dewy eyed brightness of a new bathed baby. The habitual filth of its common streets had been washed by circuitous paths into the swollen Thames, which had the appearance of boiling chocolate. The various animals, used to traversing the narrow streets, seemed unsteady in their gait perhaps unused to stepping on hard stones rather than soft refuse. The Ecumenical Council gathered at dawn. The Archbishop of London, a slow, ponderous man with the unlikely name of Galatius Mercury, gathered with twelve bishops and Lord Serbs in a large, cold room in Whitehall. Archbishop Mercury began the proceedings by setting down an enormous mug of coffee in front of him and apologizing in advance for what he promised would be constant slurping, but it was in fact the only way he could get his bowels to work. He was a man who seemed to have cultivated the manners of a peasant. This was considered, by many who made it their hobby to trace the habits of high church officials to be a canny persona, designed to make him more accessible to the common people. The truth of the matter, however, was that Archbishop Mercury was the son of a peasant who had obscured his past with grim effectiveness. One close friend who knew his secret compared him to a squid which squirts cloud of ink before darting to the bottom. Archbishop Mercury had commented that the comparison was apt, except for the direction. The squid hid the sun in order to escape to the roots of the ocean, while he had hidden his roots in order to gain access to the sun. Thus it was inaccurately surmised that Archbishop Mercury had, in at least one of the secret ventricles of his heart, strong sympathy for Mary. The other twelve examiners were fairly undistinguished, men whose only claim to fame was that the examination of their histories would likely be assigned to troublesome graduate students in the distant future. The room was chilly. Early December in London has never been hospitable to large rooms, and the religious air of the meeting escaped the lips of the seated churchmen in hazy puffs. Lord Serbs sat in a seat soon to be occupied by Mary, and held a thin cigar between his forefingers. He despised this habit of his lost youth, partly because he could never quite master the habit of smoking in a masculine manner, thumb to forefinger. Every time he tried it, his pinky rose maddeningly. However, since he had been solely responsible for bringing Mary to London, and would face serious consequences should it go poorly, he allowed himself this minor concession to a sleepless night. Archbishop Mercury was rather renowned for the length of his sentences, and this habit did not take long to manifest itself. "'Lord Serbs,' he said, after a slurp of coffee that sounded like a frog being turned inside out, "'we appreciate your presence here at such an early hour. "'And I, personally, having been away from London for a week, "'and always it would seem at least one step in front of the papers,' or to one side or the other, such that we were involved in a grotesque dance, which it seemed at least one of us had never taken the trouble to learn, and so it has fallen on me to lead this examination. While being little prepared in knowledge or history as to the nature and content of the examinee, this Miss O'Donnell, the Archbishop's breath ran out at this point. But as it can be supposed— he heard his bowels awakening, he combined an inhalation comparable to a wide wind striking his face with a violent slurp of coffee, which sounded like a bugle being horribly overblown and then cracking. All heads shrank back at the sound, and then turned quickly as the great doors opened, and Stephen and Jack entered, apologizing for their lateness. But apparently their landlady had not tugged at the string they had tied to one or the other's toes— "'and left outside the door. "'Lord Serbs rose and gestured for them to sit. "'Your graces,' he said, "'here are Stephen and Jack Truvalds, "'brothers who share the J.P. position of Croydon, "'and have been the only ones thus far "'to have interviewed Miss O'Donnell. "'Ah, then you have much to tell us. "'Do you wish to submit questions "'or report independently?' Another slurped, this one with all the drippy explosiveness of a wet wind from the nether regions. Expressions froze, then relaxed, as the source of the flapping noise was determined to be the less offensive end of Archbishop Mercury's troublesome digestive system. Stephen Rose "'We shall report. She is self-educated and remarkably intelligent,' Jack Rose, "'knowledgeable of law and extremely evasive in her replies.' Her argument thus far, she grants, that the source of aristocratic authority is divine right, but is more a proponent of natural law, and that there are certain inalienable rights, but she would submit to direct royal command within certain conditions, but refused to admit her belief in God, which the whole foundation rests on. That question she deferred to this council. Ah said Archbishop Mercury, leaning forward to sip. Foreheads furrowed, waiting to hear, but the Archbishop merely frowned at something in the mug's contents and set it back down again. His robes expanded mightily in preparation for a sentence. "'Well, it seems hardly likely that we should be called here,' myself especially, I say at the risk of sounding pompous, perhaps even officious, which I strive mightily to avoid, even to the degree of finding something quite ludicrous in this hat, (laughs) to ask such a simple question as, do you believe in God? Let's see, there are 13 of us, even if we exclude the laity, who might have cause to speak, if only from experience, not knowledge, so if we include only our church representatives, that leaves 13 of us and only five words. If we extend the question to include her name and grant Miss the status of word, though it could also be categorized as her name, we have eight words and 13 of us. We can, of course, append as many holies and almighties as we please to make it 13 words. Yet it seems to me that we still vastly outnumber the problem. Lord Serbs spoke. It is my understanding that she is, unless her spirit be totally broken, unlikely to say simply yes or no in answer to the question. Reporters and spectators filled the enormous room by 8 a.m., Mary was brought in some minutes later. Her head was bandaged, her dress simple and clean. She took her place at a low table in front of the rows of people. There was a chair, but she stood, gazing at the rows of bishops. Archbishop Mercury stood. "'You understand, Miss O'Donnell, this is not a court, but rather an ecumenical examination.' and as such you will not be tried by a jury of your peers, we sentence you according to the dictates of doctrine and conscience. That sentence, should we believe you to be an unbeliever, will be death. Do you understand everything we have said? No. Please ask about anything which is unclear. I am uneducated and do not pretend to understand the doctrines of the High Anglican Church— It is my concern that I shall unwittingly profess a belief that may contradict certain doctrines. In order to fully satisfy the examination, I should like to be given leave to question them, you, on matters of doctrine as well, uh, so as to better ascertain the overlap of beliefs between myself and the church. A bishop coughed. But it is our understanding that you spent some significant time in a nunnery. That is true, but I was not a nun, and spent my time studying other matters. My understanding of theology is almost non-existent. Another raised his hand. But do you not attend church? Due to the rural nature of the congregation, our priest's sermons were necessarily metaphorical. So I understand religion in a storybook sense, and am not competent to speak of doctrine." Archbishop Mercury nodded slowly. Very well. Since this is a matter of life and death, we allow you to ask questions of us. However, I would like to point out that we are not trying to corner you here or trap you. Our concern is for your immortal soul. We will not try to trick you into heresy. Is that clear? Yes. Now, let us proceed. Miss O'Donnell, do you believe in God? As the question is phrased, it it cannot be answered. And why is that? Well, were I to ask you do you believe in Nog, what would you say? Archbishop Mercury stared at her, settling his rump a little. Mary (laughs) smiled. I submit that you would say that there is no way of answering the question until the word Nog were more clearly defined. A bishop's head moved forward slightly. "'Miss O'Donnell, do you believe that you have a different idea of God than the majority of the people gathered in this room?' "'I I don't know, since I have never questioned them about the nature of their beliefs.' An ecclesiastical lip curled. "'Well, we cannot in the course of a day provide you with a thorough theological education. No.' Of that I am sure. Yet you do believe that my answer will save or or damn my immortal soul? Certainly. Then, Then if I say yes to the question of whether I believe in God, and it turns out that what I believe in is not God, then I am damned. Another bishop shook his head. But child, if you follow the commandments of the Holy Church, you will surely be saved. I agree, and would you say that it is important to follow these commandments blindly or with a clear understanding? Archbishop Mercury said, Certainly, understanding is better. As educated men, it would be perverse to argue otherwise. Well, I am keen to follow the commandments of my church if they will save my soul, and now my bishops have commanded me to tell them whether I believe in God, so I consider it crucial to be able to answer accurately. A grim bishop scowled. Well, this is perverse. I refuse to be examined in theology by a peasant girl. I sympathize, said Mary. May I please have some water? I've lost a lot of blood recently. Thank you. And I know that to, to refrain from answering could cause my death at your hands. Yet I do wish to please this examination— uh, And of course it would be very easy for me to say, yes, I believe in this or that, but but I take these questions very seriously. The crowd murmured and buzzed, and pencils scratched madly on paper. To understand the fascination this line of questioning was engendering in the audience, it is important to remember just how deeply rooted their belief in God was. To even question the existence of God was extremely dangerous. There was no separation of church and state. The entire edifice of civil authority rested on the existence and infallibility of God. There was no real democracy, so the sole legitimacy of authority was that God appointed kings to rule the world. The French Revolution, moreover, had created the impression that to remove religion from the social contract meant loosing murder to run riot in the streets. So both the rulers and the ruled believed that either people accepted God or the society ceased to exist. Mary's questions were very disturbing because she was like a murderer who was allowed to question the judge on why murder was wrong. If the judges could only answer, because it is illegal, then their answer amounted to saying, it is wrong because we choose to make it wrong. And society's edicts are always weakened when mere preference is revealed, where all formerly thought existed absolute ethics. Also, given the extraordinary publicity of the trial, countless pencils scratched whenever Mary spoke, so none of the bishops wanted to push the issue into theology. Neither did Archbishop Mercury, but his integrity outstripped those of his companions, and he also felt a kinship with the thin and bandaged girl before him. He raised his hand, and the assembled crowd hushed somewhat. "'Very well. Let us take the questions seriously,' he said. "'You say that you cannot describe your faith until we describe God? "'Very well. God is the supreme creator of the universe, all-powerful, all-knowing, "'the cause of everything, who himself is caused by nothing. "'He is eternal, unchanging, perfect, and has created man in his own image.' "'Yes?' Mary frowned and lowered her hand well, this is inexcusably rude, but, but I'm quite full of questions and, and don't want to forget any of them. Please, I cannot fathom how an entity can be both all-powerful and all-knowing. If he knows everything, he knows what he will do in the future. If, however, he knows what he will do in the future, he, he is powerless to change it and so cannot be all-powerful. So... "'I cannot understand how he he can be both all-powerful and all-knowing.' "'This is easily answered,' said a bishop to the left of the archbishop, "'and is related to a moral question regarding free will, "'which is how can God punish a man for actions he already knows will be performed? "'In other words, how can we have free will if God knows what we are going to do? "'Is that an accurate restatement?' Yes, I believe so. The answer is that to God, all of time is the same moment. There is no future or past for him. Therefore, a man's moral decision and his soul's final destination occur at the same time for God. So, in reply to your example, God's future actions— do not in any way contradict his current knowledge since these terms do not apply to him. Mary nodded. Thank you. You you have clarified things immensely. So I understand that although we measure time as change, since God is eternal and unchanging, our, our concept of time does not apply to him. That is correct. Now, Would you say that we can comprehend this state of timelessness? What? What does that mean? Excuse me. (laughs) She apologized. Uh, uh, Please describe to me what is meant by no time. Well, everything is the same instant, yet there is no instant no. All time is one time, which itself is not time. No. Mary shook her head. Little... Spots of blood were showing on her bandaged forehead as if these questions were making her brain bleed. I'm sorry, she said, but but I cannot solve this riddle. It seems to me that I am saying this equals Y, and then you say, no, it equals X, though X, in fact, does not equal itself. I, I, I do not think that we have clarified anything as yet. If, for instance, I ask if you believe in an entity called Nog, and you ask me to define Nog, and I say that human concepts of time do not apply to Nog, you are unlikely to be able to decide whether you believe in Nog or not. Yet these are matters of faith, Miss O'Donnell, said Archbishop Mercury gently. They can, no more than love, be pried into their component pieces— do you believe that the world is round? I do. But you have no proof of this. You haven't seen it for yourself. There are rational proofs. Um, a ship's sails vanish over the horizon. The, the Earth's shadow on the moon is round. and Drake has sailed around the world. I, and although I have not seen all of this myself, I understand the logic. And no one is trying to tell me that the world is both round and square at the same time. Or, or that the world is a shape which has no shape or or, or other such contradictory statements. Has God never spoken to you? He asked softly. I don't understand that question. Do I hear voices in my head? Of of course. We all argue with ourselves, but there is no voice which always takes precedence over the others. Do I dream of an all-wise infinite father? Of course. But I also dream of fairies with elephant trunks yet have not tried to persuade men of science to include this new species in their textbooks. Mary did not seem angry, but the audience could feel a strangeness in the air. An odd sense of awkwardness, incisiveness, and barely contained rage filled the chamber, like her imaginary elephant over that long-gone children's table. "'Have you eaten, my dear?' asked Archbishop Mercury. "'I was too too nervous, but but I could eat now. "'Do. "'I call a recess. "'I suspect that we have a lengthy day ahead of us.' The bishops retired to an ante-room, and there was great consternation. Many different oppositions were raised to the current undertaking. They were— Generally, one cannot teach calculus to someone ignorant of calculus. She was employing sophistical tricks unworthy of being raised before such an august council. This was quickly shelved. The word sophist naturally summoned that of Socrates, and none wanted that association. She was to be restricted to replies of yes or no. This was also rejected. Archbishop Mercury had given his assent to mutual questioning. And it would appear cowardly. "'to withdraw it after the first skirmish. "'Far from being merely inquisitive, "'Miss O'Donnell had a hidden agenda which was satanic.' "'This last sally came from a bishop "'long suspected of using theology "'as a thin veneer for rank superstition, "'and he withdrew it grudgingly under extreme protest.' "'Finally, Archbishop Mercury spoke the following.' My friends, this is not Russia or Germany. England has a long and proud tradition of civil liberties. Now, liberty of belief is not one of them. It has been said that the true bargain is between ourselves and the aristocracy, that we legitimise their rule and they collect our tithes. Now, Miss O'Donnell has caused the destruction of the House of Carvey and as such represents a grave threat to our sordid brothers. Their laws, due to a curious and unexpected sequence of events, and Miss O'Donnell's knowledge or manipulation of these laws as a matter of her own conscience, have been turned against them. However, we do not in this land rule the soul with the sword. I suggest that we be allowed to continue with our questioning without reference to God— but instead concentrate on the existence of the soul. If Miss O'Donnell grants that, we have established consciousness without material roots, and are then in a much better position to prove to her the existence of God. I shall take the lead, for if she does not grant the existence of the soul, she is doomed by the laws of the land. For if she does not grant the possibility of damnation, we cannot offer her. Salvation. After some more disagreement, this course of action was established. The bishops returned to the examination room, and the audience quickly took their seats again. "'Miss O'Donnell,' said Archbishop Mercury, "'have you eaten?' "'Yes, thank you.' "'With your permission, we wish to turn our examination to the existence of the soul.' "'Now, no doubt you will wish to call it a ghoul, or some such word, "'and we shall try to come to an understanding on those terms. "'Is that acceptable?' "'Yes. "'Now, I shall define the soul in such terms, "'and you shall tell us whether you agree.' "'Very well,' said Mary. "'Proceed.' Archbishop Mercury shot her a glance at the presumption of the last word, "'and felt a tickle of sweat in one of his armpits.' The soul, he said, is the immaterial and eternal seat of consciousness which enters the body on conception and leaves it on death. It is the essence of what we term animation, thought, or life itself. Do you believe in such an entity? I'm afraid I I cannot say. Is it my understanding that the Church does not agree with the existence of ghosts? That is correct. That would be an area of exploration otherwise. As to the question of the soul, you say that it is eternal? Yes, and thus is different from all other forms of material life. The same goes for its immateriality, since no known life is either eternal or immaterial. This is also true for inanimate matter. Stones, of course, are neither immaterial nor eternal. That is so. So, would it be true to say that a soul has no characteristics in common with any other known thing? Excluding God and his hosts, yes. You have been so good as to exclude them. Is it also true that we cannot accurately grasp either existence without matter or existence without end? I do not follow. Well, these concepts are entirely defined by negations. For instance, eternal life is an oxymoron, since all known life ends. Just as all life is material... So, a soul is defined as what life is not, and the idea of it being immaterial and eternal is not not a positive, but rather a negative definition. (laughs) Thus, you're attempting to convince me of the existence of a color which has characteristics simply defined as the opposite of all colors. As such, I do not really understand the definition and must ask you for more clarity. A bishop could not resist "'So it is your belief that the soul does not leave the body after death?' "'Again, I cannot say, since I cannot comprehend what you mean by the soul. "'You are asking me whether two plus two equals green "'or or, or whether a square circle leaves the body after death.' "'His eyes narrowed. "'You do realize that you cannot abstain from these answers. "'If a positive agreement is not voiced by you, you are surely doomed.' Mary's eyes widened. But, but I, I am not abstaining, gentle sirs. I am not saying I refuse to answer. All that I ask is that I be given clear questions. <laughs> for, uh, for the sake of expediency, I, I will go further and anticipate future questions. You will ask me if I believe the Bible to be the literal word of God, and, and I shall reply that you have still not told me what God is. And I may further imperil my soul, though not the eternal cause of truth, by remarking that you yourselves do not believe that the Bible is the literal word of God, since Christ himself commands all who wish to follow him to cast off all property. And it is my understanding that the church as a whole, as well as yourselves individually, own property far in excess of the national norm. Now, I I do not suggest that this indicates any immorality, for... It is my understanding that the Church interprets this commandment to indicate that the salvation of the soul is more important than the retention of property. The Church, then, cannot say that the Bible speaks literal truth. But for heaven's sakes, woman, cried Archbishop Mercury, what would become of morality in the absence of religion? Let me ask you this, since you have been so generous in admitting my questions. may I sit? I'm, I'm feeling a little dizzy. Thank you. My question is this, is God infinitely good? Of course. Now, is God good because of what he does, or who he is? God does not do, he simply is, replied a bishop. Well, um, in the Old Testament God does many things. He he floods and strikes down and rains frogs and parts waters. (laughs) But if we exclude these acts as metaphorical, how how do we know if God is good if he does not act? Or, conversely, if he does act, how are we to judge his actions? Or, even if we do not judge God by his actions or, or lack thereof, we know that this world is his creation, where millions starve and murder and steal He gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan, yet he lets millions die, when without effort he could save them. That remains the domain of free will. It is up to man to save man. And should immaterial disaster strike a man down, well then he goes to heaven and all is well. Not if he has no chance to repent. A good man sins once and is struck by lightning on the way to church. An evil man lives to an old age and repents on his deathbed. This is why we should not sin, because death can strike at any time. And were a man to stand idle, while another died in agony, we should not count him a good man. Yet we unite God with good, though he does nothing to save the world. God's actions are not for us to judge. Since we do not possess the gift of omniscience, "'We must suspend judgment, since we cannot comprehend these things, "'and believe without reason, precisely. "'Then why does the church expend so much energy on theological questions? "'Augustine writes volumes trying to prove the existence of God, "'and he is sainted. "'I will be killed for my questions, "'because you do not believe already,' cried a bishop. "'As I have said, I cannot affirm what is beyond my understanding.' You will tell me that the universe exists because God created it, which puts forth the axiom that for anything to exist, it must be created. Yet if God is allowed to exist without being created, why not the universe? To the answer of, why are we here? You reply that what we see, who we are, was created by an incomprehensible being for unfathomable purposes. And then you ask if I believe this? It is not an answer. It is incredible. So... "'You do not believe it. "'I cannot affirm or deny what is insufficiently defined. "'I am also not a little troubled that you learned gentlemen "'who have spent thirteen lifetimes studying it "'can do so little to define these matters for me.' "'The bishops leaned forward, charging, without standing. "'But this is little more than rank scepticism. What do you believe in, then? I believe that I am standing here speaking with you. I believe in the scaffold being prepared for me. I believe in my neck and gravity. And on what grounds do you believe that? Asked Bishop Mercury gently. Could this not all be a dream? I know that it is not. On what grounds? Dreams contradict themselves. What I wake to remains constant. Now, you do realize that we do not require a positive declaration of disbelief. Abstaining from the question will not save you, Mary O'Donnell. I well understand the questions which bar your heart from God. They are the vultures which circle every man and woman in the question of faith. All I ask is that you consider these facts, and facts they are. And this comes from love within me, partly to save your life, of course, but more from love of your immortal soul, which writhes, I believe, under the heel of your formidable intellect. Across the whole world, in every society, in every land, there exists in almost every soul a deep and abiding belief in God. Do you consider it wise to put your uneducated intellectual judgment against the certainty of countless million human souls? "'Please,' he said, raising his hands, "'the question is partly theoretical. "'I intend only to raise some doubt in your scepticism, as it were. "'Furthermore, let me take my priestly hat off and speak for a layperson. "'Let us say that the question of the existence of God remains open. "'Do you not see the risk of your position? "'All religions agree that faith—' It's the road to heaven. If there is no God, but you believe anyway, you go to heaven. What have you lost? Some Sunday morning singing in a warm church. What have you gained? Eternal bliss. What about the other option, the option of skepticism? Suppose you do not believe, and there is no God. You have gained little. But if you do not believe, and there is a God, why then, you spend an eternity in endless torment i know that there are many logical reasons to dispute this scale but i ask you to listen to your heart not your head for god speaks in love not syllogisms the soul meets god in serenity in acceptance in wonder at the complexity and beauty of creation the wonder and fragility of your fellow man I have struggled with all the questions you raise, my dear, and I have found that a bird, a sunrise, the birth of a child, are where God's hand is truly to be seen. It is my belief that the most passionate develop reason out of fear of their passion, and that God is very strong in you. Why else? would you fight so hard i do not doubt that you have suffered greatly in your young life there has been poverty and want of course but what i see is a brilliant mind that has developed in the absence of gentle care and loving guidance but there are some who are able to see the wonder that you are we are not all peasants The church is here to embrace you, not chastise you. The church is the great refuge for brilliant minds, for deep and powerful hearts such as yours. (laughs) You have raised yourself, my dear, and like any child who has been her own parent, you have discipline where you should have love, and license where you should have strictness. Your great and obvious powers have hitherto warred with the world. And, well, I understand that battle, for the world you have known has rejected and tried in its blindness to murder what is best and most pure in your soul. But there is another world, Mary, a world where you can be seen and loved for who you are, a world that will nurture all that is great and magical in your heart. This is the world I offer you. I ask for faith, not in God, for that may be slow in coming for you, but faith in the good motives of those who can see your greatness and love you the more for it. In this circle, you shall be accepted for all the qualities that have made you a homeless wanderer. Take that step, Mary. Rise above your anger and take a step towards open arms. Do not let your rage carve the world into the mask of a hunter. Mary stood for a long moment after the Archbishop's passionate speech. Her head lowered. When she looked up, her eyes were wet with tears. She gazed at Archbishop Mercury for almost a minute. May, she whispered, may I join this world if I do not affirm that God exists. Were we philosophers, I I would say yes, but we are men of God. But I believe that it may be through me that God speaks to you. Mary smiled and blinked, laughing suddenly. (laughs) Funny, I always thought he'd be taller. (laughs) Sorry, that was just nerves. Ah, of course, you tempt me. But in, in all your heartfelt poetry, this one fact stands clear. You claim to value what is most precious in me. And there is more in me that is precious than either of us can know. But what I find eternally precious are my questions. And it is precisely this which you require I destroy in order to join you. You do not love me. That would break me and you cannot claim to speak in love, or you would not make this request. The shadow of the gallows stretched long over this conversation. I know that you wish to save me from death, but by virtue, or the lack of it, of you being able to save or kill me, you cannot offer me my life without destroying what is most precious in me. There was a sob in the audience. Kay closed her eyes and raised a handkerchief to her face. Outside, the high sun drew a shroud of clouds over its ashen face, and the room darkened. There was a long pause. Then Archbishop Mercury spoke. This examination is at an end. Mary O'Donnell... We have found you guilty of heresy against the most holy Anglican Church in that you refuse to affirm the existence of God or the immortal soul. Thus you cannot affirm the legitimacy of our civil rulers since they derive their authority from divine dispensation. This would be considered high treason in a court of secular law but has little relevance here. He took a deep breath. It is thus the sentence of this council that you be taken to Newgate Prison and from there be taken to a place of execution and hung by the neck until you be dead. He raised his eyes to Mary. And may God have mercy on your soul. She smiled, her eyes brimming with tears. And may Nog have mercy on on your ghoul. As she was being led away, Kay leapt forward and grabbed Mary's hand. Oh, Mary, Mary, it's the hardest thing. You are being put to death unjustly. Kay, don't be silly, replied Mary. Would you rather I was put to death justly? CHAPTER 70 A NIGHT IN NEWGATE There are dissenters to even the most widely held prejudices, and it is through these dissenters that prejudices fall. There is no fathoming the source of the jailer's sympathy for the rights of women. He may have had a wonderful mother, he may have wanted to be a woman, But the most likely explanation is that, being a jailer, he was exposed to such a wretched procession of men, that were he to believe that women were the inferior sex, he would have expected that every time he climbed from the hellish depths of his job to the light, he would find that civilization had been entirely scrubbed from existence by a god, who, though he may have been infinite, found that his patience was not... Whatever the reason for Samuel's sympathy for women, he was very gentle towards his newest and very short-lived inmate. When he heard that he was receiving a heretic, he steeled himself and set his teeth in a grim stance, for he was used to rather wide-eyed lunatics who cursed God in such wild tones that he was generally obliged to grapple and gag them. When he saw a woman... He spoke to the warden, asking why she was given to his care, and received the response that heretics always went in the same cell, at the bottom, and that this one being a woman in form mattered little, since she was a damned, damned, soulless creature anyway. Samuel was a man of rather unconsidered religious opinions, and did not think deeply on the question of killing people for their religious beliefs but he could not help but think that Mary O'Donnell was far from soulless. In fact, he got the distinct impression that she was somewhat overcharged with whatever matter the soul was charged with, and the odd thought struck him that were she to fall in flames to hell, the entire infernal land would creak and groan under her weight. And should she go to heaven, he thought for a moment before dismissing the thought, the host of angels, though infinite in number, would surely bulge and scatter in the vehemence of her entrance. Reporters came to speak with her. They were not the sober-suited, weighty men of letters who represented the more sedate and conservative elements of the press, but rather a species of Spidery, unshaven radicals who trooped in and sat with her for hours, smoking in the grim depths of her cell, scribbling madly by candlelight. Mary spoke softly about matters that Samuel did not follow very well, except that she seemed very much in favour of merchants and very down on the aristocracy. He kept a list of the people who came to see her, though names such as Xavier P. Scribblehead did not give him much faith as to their accuracy. Finally, a woman came down in the early hours of the morning. She was a woman of rare beauty, who seemed to be some sort of celestial squirrel in that she carried her physical wealth in her plump cheeks. Samuel was unused to beauty, and stared at her in wonder. He felt the radiance of loveliness against his skill in a strangely subterranean manner, as the restless dreams of late afternoon naps are altered when a square of sunlight slowly slides over the sleeper's eyes. He duly wrote down her name, which was odd to him, for his instinct of class, so well honed in English society, did not indicate her aristocracy. Still, he bowed, for good measure, and showed Lady Bricknell into the cell room. Mary was asleep, her head lolling against the wet brick of the wall. Lady Bricknell put her fingers against her lips and soundlessly moved the single chair forward and sat, her knees touching the bars. Samuel shrugged and closed the door softly leaving the pair in peace. Lady Bricknell removed her hat and leaned forward, her nostrils widened as if trying to catch the scent of Mary's dreams. Mary was in the throes of an old, old dream, wherein she was being chased through a rich mansion by a froth-nosed and silent horse. "'until she stood in front of a wide glass of French doors "'overlooking a churning fountain. "'This was usually her last stand, "'and the silent horse would burst through the far doors "'and regard her with black eyes, "'dripping foam on the oriental rug, "'and everything was silent, "'save for the soft, soft thuds "'of foam landing on the carpet, "'which sounded like a faint, irregular heartbeat. "'And then... All of a sudden the horse would rush forward, its legs remaining still, and this would terrify Mary so much that she would gasp awake. But this time there was no fear. She stood her ground and exhaled mightily as the horse struck her, throwing her arms wide, and they sailed through the French doors as if one and fell into the deep pool below. And now it was the horse who was afraid, and Mary saw the stars squiggling above the rippling water high above her like mad, darting fireflies. And then there was a struggle to awake. But Mary did not want to awake. She felt at peace under the dark water and did not want to rise. But something rose under her and propelled her to the surface. And she opened her eyes and saw little points of light flickering above her, and her neck ached. Mary, said a gentle, sad voice, and something in Mary's memory closed in on itself. And she took a deep breath and stifled a sob, and lifted her hand, and whispered, Not yet, and resumed her seat, the seat she had occupied since the night of the fire, when deep in a cloud of sparks she had lost her breath to Lawrence's grip and stared into his murderous eyes. Normally so wild in the whirlwind of her own passions and terrors, she had felt herself elevated in that moment to a still seat high above herself where she could watch the mad stampedes of her flaming wildebeests with impunity. Such must the eye of a fighting sailor, rest, sad and complete should his head fly far above the savagery of a mighty storm, and look down through the roiling clouds and jagged lightning to the mad caricature of a headless body fighting for life. But Mary was able to think clearly, which she was grateful to experience even if just for a few days before death, which even in her present state of clarity and calm, could not come soon enough. It struck her that the feelings one possesses on death could be what one feels for eternity, and this is what she would choose among any of the passions which had always torn at her young frame. Mary, the voice said again, and she lifted her head forward, feeling dizzy as the sparkles above her tilted like a swinging night sky. A hooded woman sat across from her. As Mary watched, the woman leaned forward and dipped her head, lifting her cowl. Even in the guttering candlelight, and even given time's work on her blonde hair, which is to darken its youthful purity before silvering it in hopeful veneration— She recognized the color, and so the woman. Lady, she whispered, Mary, cried the woman, giving vent to sobs, and she threw herself at the bars, her hands groping forward, and Mary felt her body rising to meet the fingers, caressing only air. And she fell against the bars and gripped lady's hair, and surrendered to the infant sensuality of pure touch, and yearned in glowing, aching joy as Lady's hands roamed over her hair, her face, her shoulders, and pressed her forehead against the bars to Lady's kissing lips. "'I know. I remember you don't like to be touched,' whispered Lady, "'but as a sister, which we are, in the flesh, <laughs> the only witnesses to each other's happiest time. Mary cried, then, Her body, her skin, her very pores cried out to be filled, and she groaned as she pressed herself against the rusty bars, and surrendered herself to the wide warmth beyond. At length her sobs subsided, and she twisted against the wall and let her legs flop long. And Lady sat down too, and they linked arms through the bars and held each other's hands, and tickled each other's forearms, and Mary felt anew, peace. It was like her spine oozed warm caramel, and it filled her flesh to overflowing. So, did you marry Josh? asked Mary, and they laughed, remembering the boy who tied poems to the trees where Lady walked and tossed her hair. No, (laughs) my father married me off to Mr. Bricknell, two counties over much to the advantage of the family. But then, she smiled, he was always good at breeding his livestock. They laughed at men then. The laughter that women need to survive some men. Mary touched her lips. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you lost it. Yes, replied Lady simply. But if I am a good woman, and I hope I am, we shall not meet in the afterlife. And they laughed again and cried a little more and it was the laughter of sisterhood which outlasts all the terminal affections of men do you have children asked mary yes three two boys and a girl of course i named my first girl mary but she died poor thing so i named the second mary but she died as well but the third one is still alive not bright of course not at all But you have to know how shallow and vain blonde girls are. Yes, they are most silly. Are you happy? Well, my husband travels a great deal. You know, I have thought of you often. Not every day. Everyone says not a day passes when I don't think of you. Wait, is that right? A double negative, but right. Well, I would say that I thought of you every three days. (laughs) Maybe three and a half. No, three is right. Oh, my maths. (laughs) I would think of you coming to my house and keeping me company. So selfish. But I would live in your attic, quiet as a mouse. Well, of course. You always spoiled me, Mary. You always watched me. I was very noble in those days. I thought of you as my lady-in-waiting. Now I have two, but they're not half so clever as you. "'They don't tell me stories about armies. "'I tell them your stories. "'Now that's immortality,' smiled Mary. "'And then she suddenly turned towards Lady. "'Stay with me until morning,' she whispered. "'I need you, and am more grateful than I can say "'that you have come.' "'I have buried four children,' said Lady quietly. "'Of course,' I will stay with you, even to the scaffold itself, my sister. And Mary closed her eyes for a moment, and then she opened her mouth, and they talked until dawn, and all secrets were set free. The memories of private hiding of the places on the river bank that were best to sit, of the shape of trees long gone and what they suggested, and the funniest habits of people long dead or scattered, of hidden places to avoid scolding, of boys now fathers and the foolishness of their fumbling touches, of learning to dance and the last skinned knees of childhood, and all the secret ways children look at the world all the foolish wonder of our first and most elemental impressions. And as they spoke, they both felt that their lives took on some kind of shape, for there can be no plots without reference to our first chapters. And there was nothing between them but sweet words and old scenes, scenes so old they were more fresh than the dank prison they sat in, and they smiled and wept in alternation until it seemed their cheeks were aching mounds of lost salt. Finally they felt the coming of the dawn. There was no evidence of it in their deep dungeon, but they felt it nonetheless. It was hard to describe Mary's state, She was not composed, nor serene, but she was very still. Life crouched within her, watching, like a toddler beside the body of a fallen mother. A priest was brought down, and Samuel entered and unlocked Mary's cell. The two women stood slowly, stiffly. Mary's legs buckled and Lady leaned down and massaged her calves. "'One moment,' said Lady. "'My legs are asleep.' (laughs) "'Thank you,' added Mary. Within a few moments, she could stand. "'It's like walking on hooves,' she murmured. They began mounting the stairs towards the surface. The general population of the prison was aware of the presence of their famous guest, and many catcalls and helpful suggestions rang through the frozen air. "'I cannot decide if I want to live,' whispered Mary, and Lady bent her golden head to hear. "'If there is an afterlife, I should like to haunt the Archbishop, which would prove him wrong about ghosts, but he would have been right about the soul.' No, I would let him be, for uncertainty is best. I wish I had been more uncertain, but then I would have achieved nothing, so... Well, at least there will be an end to questions. I am composed like a sheet of music, and, and uh, soon I shall be decomposed. Worm to frog, frog to fowl, fowl to man, man to worm. I could have run at any time. I'm glad to finally be considered threatening. You have to fight wildly sometimes for your enemies to notice you. These lies (laughs) will not be undone in our lifetimes. (laughs) Well, mine for certain. I think I am a devil, but the devil is not a heretic. He believes with every stone in his heart. That wasn't my fight everything I took away never existed to begin with fog curses the dawn the passions lead you here then vanish to find a new victim some newborn child is now crying for no reason no reason that I I shall ever be discovered They came out into the street, and policemen kept the crowd back. There were religious fanatics with crude signs of REPENT and numbered Bible verses. As if I could look them up now, thought Mary briefly. Some dropped to their knees as Mary was loaded into a cart. They clutched and cried out to the clear heavens, and a flurry of pigeons exploded from eaves troughs and scattered short lazy pigeon distances before stumbling to earth the colors were bright so bright thought mary that she wondered whether she had stumbled and dashed her brains out against the cart and was now seeing with the senses of the soul and felt a stab of horror that the afterlife might be just just a continuation of life with all the same confusion and "'Mary, my daughter!' screamed a voice, and Mary turned her head to see a wild-haired woman with grey eyes and angular cheeks and red gums. "'Twas I who left thee at the Jigger Farm. I love thee and will see thee in heaven.' "'She is my daughter, slut!' cried a fat woman with short hair and blood vessels stretching her cheeks. She pushed the first woman in the face. "'My daughter, my daughter!' cried the crowd in great glee, attempting to lift the fat woman. Mary closed her eyes. Her soul was damned, saved, cursed for its hellish pursuits, and praised for its heavenly clarity. Every thought was called out from the roiling crown. Mary felt the grating squiggle, of the wagon's wheels as the men pulling her labored through the crowds. She opened her eyes and saw everything clearly. Each hair on each head stood bright and clustered. Each cobblestone was a planet, each beam of wood a wide desert, each thatched roof a frozen waterfall of tight wheat. She saw the alleys slowly swinging past her sight and wondered where they led. What was the shape of each room behind each barred door? Twelve people are fornicating this moment. Sixteen children are being born. Twelve brides bemoan their dresses. Two best men have lost the rings. But it is not I who will end to the world. It is the world that will end to me. There was the scaffold on top of a raised platform. Mary looked down and loosened her fingers from her palms. I hate that it is a show. And suddenly she could not remember whether she ate the peas she used to do math problems when she was a very young child when the cook had caught her in the pantry. If I could eat anything now, what would it be? She wondered, and the reply came. Myself. I don't care how they remember my end. I am a short morning's entertainment. Should I slap the hangman? She thought, then saw the carvey's front lawn and the smoking, rolling corpses, and thought... That would be most unjust. She stepped down from the cart, and Lady crashed through the arms of the policeman and held her tightly, crying over and over, Don't be afraid, you are loved at once. She was pulled away, and Mary gazed at her face, then blew her a kiss, a tear trickling from her eye. Does my liver know it will die? My eyes know they look at nothing but the scaffold. My hands know they clench and sweat. My feet knows not. Neither does my hair. A priest droned in Latin by her side. She swerved and knocked him with her hips, sending his Bible flying. Then she ran up the steps. There was a great roar in the crowd and cries of, Run, Mary, run! And she stood before the hangman who offered her a hood she nodded. I would rather see nothing than my fellow men. The rough hood was placed over her head, and she sniffed deeply. Do they rinse them? she wondered, but could smell only the slight wood of honest burlap. Then she calmed. Then she relaxed. All her muscles seemed to fade into gentle obscurity, And she thought, here, there, now my body knows. Every cell wears a hood and is ready. And she felt the noose slip around her neck and opened her eyes wide and saw the million, million stars of the sun through the burlap. And she felt all her mad energy racing around her body, For the first time ever, she felt the enormity of her power as it raced from leg to arm to spine, trying each locked door, fumbling for a hidden catch on every smooth and veined wall. And then, and then, that energy, whatever it was, the sum total of her being, well, then it ceased its mad rummaging. It sat, poised in her great heart like a Persian king like a great sultan and every pore of her skin opened like an eye and with great oceanic calm she said with one breath let us see and then she fell it was short surprising and then the stars in her eyes jerked in a terrible strangeness invaded her body, and she felt that her head was the only thing about her. But there were great earthquakes below it, and the colors displayed themselves like dances for the last time, and then ran together into a white so bright that... And then... And then... Well, then, one of several things happened. First, all the infinite and subtle orchestras of chemistry and electricity ceased their motions and lay stagnant and cooling, and nothing left Mary at all, and she felt no more in death than she had felt before birth, and in an instant she fell from the wild and artistic heights of thought and passion to a flat mattress of pure meat. Or, second— Her ghoul did leave her body, and clutching itself like a sailor attempting to fold a flag in a high wind, it was drawn by trackless paths to a place of judgment, where minds more subtle than thought can conceive, could judge her rights and wrongs in the proper context of infinite knowledge, which alone can untangle choice from circumstance, imagination from responsibility, ends from means, vengeance from just provocation. Or, or, or she, or it, since it can no longer be he or she, or it fell into the earth and lay in wait, looking at its existence with all the leisure of patient watching, and all the knowledge of a finished book, until it found a potential life which warmed its interest and it flowed into a new vessel to begin its instruction once more. Chapter 71 A Funeral She would have wanted a bigger funeral thought Lawrence as his boots crunched in the deep frost. Unusual snow fell around the smallish party. Lord Serbs was there, and Lydia, and Kay, and Jonathan. The ground was cold, so frozen that they heard the undignified axe-like hacking of the earth as they carried the coffin up the winding hill. The path was desperately slippery, which Lawrence was grateful for, since it gave him the chance to think of something other than himself. Great grief is a weakness, and a memory, and a toppling over of mute history. We are quite buried, and the world is eclipsed. The depth of his loss surprised Lawrence. Lives become... "'intertwined for many, many reasons other than love. "'And the loss without love is the hardest of all. "'We lose the hope of love and mourn for two. Kay was completely devastated. It was she who had found their mother. She had not been alone at the end. Father Jones was with her, and it was small comfort to her children that she was able to receive her last rites and to die in the company of a priest. Lady Barbara's religious beliefs had seemed centred around social and class decorum, but she had reverted to a childlike state towards the end, and like most children probably saw God in the details of the wallpaper and the stubble of her priest. While both Lawrence and Kay felt awful for being at Mary's hanging when their mother died, Lawrence, in particular, felt a dull rage at this final, almost posthumous murder of Mary's, for he did not doubt that his mother died with her nest. Poor Kay, though, was inconsolable. It always falls to women to bring life into this world, and almost always to smooth its passage hence. Perhaps men, being unable to create life, cannot stand in the face of its passing Perhaps the womb is the foundation for the tomb, but for Kay, who always circled her femininity at an awkward distance, not being at her mother's deathbed, made her despair of ever being a true woman. Jonathan was very kind to her, however, and suggested that she write her mother's eulogy, which Kay fell to with great energy and dedication, finding it the hardest thing she had ever done and welcoming the difficulty with open arms. Jonathan sat with her late into the night. He listened to Kay describe her relationship with her mother, and was wise enough not to say that she must speak only of love and affection, but rather attempt to synthesize the wild complexity into fair and accurate statements. And by about five o'clock in the morning, Kay was relatively satisfied and completely out of tears. Now the snow fell, and they made their slow and slippery way towards the late Lord Carvey's grave, for Lady Barbara was, of course, to lie beside him. It seemed an odd proximity to Lawrence, since they had never slept so close together in real life, save at least twice, the thought crossed him. Father Jones read the service, and then Kay Rose and delivered the following eulogy. In her own way, mother would have liked it that it was snowing today, because we really had to concentrate on our steps, lest we fall. Concentration and discipline were very important to her, and woe betide any who let their mind wander. (laughs) She lost her husband young, and though she possessed neither a tender nor sentimental heart, she was very dedicated to raising her children. She was almost enormously proud of Larry, and certainly did her best with me, though as a potter of the clay that I was was rarely to her liking. She was inflexible, and short-tempered, and and, and often hard to get along with. But I reserve judgment on that to some degree, because both Larry and I were very different from her, and, and I have yet to experience what it's like trying to raise children so foreign to my own nature. She read. She was very literate, though her husband's literature was not always to her own liking. She gave both Larry and me a love affair with books. She was passionate about the right and wrong way to do things, both ethically and socially, and thought in her own mind that society was likely to come to a very bad end indeed. "'It was, in a sense, her misfortune to be born in a time of great change. "'The wisdom she tried so hard to bestow on Larry and myself "'did not always hit the mark. "'Like most people, we we, we thought her ideas antiquated. "'Though it has struck me since that, had we taken her advice, "'both our home and our mother might have been saved.' (laughs) This is the tragedy of many families. Everyone is right, but no one listens. I was always too busy keeping my mother at bay to really get to know her. Perhaps that is why she wanted me to, to get married young. Perhaps that is why she wanted me to to get married young. With my own husband at home, I might have been strong enough to listen to her. "'but none of that came to pass. "'And now I shall think of her in my life to come, "'and I shall ask her advice in times of trouble, "'and I shall try to listen to her. "'In a way I was never able to when she was alive.'" Kay stood still for a moment, then nodded at Lawrence who dug a spadeful of cold ground, and threw it on the narrow coffin. Chapter 72. Lawrence's Loss Families can be tidal in their affections to potential members. When the tide is coming in, all wrongs are submerged. When the tide is receding, however, hurts rise like rocks and old wrecks. Lawrence felt this on entering the Serbs' mansion, for what he hoped was not the last time. He was without a father. He had felt this ache growing in him for the past few months, and it reached its highest point that morning. He was shown into the study. Lord Serbs rose. Lydia was not there. Lord Carvey, said the older man. Good morning, Lord Serbs, said Lawrence. I am terribly sorry about all that has happened between us. I have no choice but to return the sheep, and I can at least pay for that. Lord Serbs nodded. Your losses certainly outstripped mine, and and for that I am sorry. What will you do now? I... "'Have an offer of employment,' he said, passing a hand over his eyes. "'You have always been part of the working class, Lawrence,' said Lord Serbs gently, "'and I mean no disrespect by that statement. "'I am not sure how much I want to say. "'That is entirely up to you, of course, but it is my belief "'that what is in our heart regarding others should not remain there.' "'Then—' then can I say that I truly hoped to join your family. My intentions towards Lydia were always of the highest... He paused. I know that you do not scorn the middle class. <laughs> Perhaps the lower middle class would be more appropriate. But I I can no longer even imagine being able to provide for Lydia in the manner to which she has become accustomed. Lord Serbs looked at him. Would you like a coffee? Yes, please. Coffee was brought. Silver trays. And fine china. Lawrence closed his eyes, feeling like a first-class passenger treading water after the ship has gone down. Lord Serbs watched him closely. There is, of course, our business matters, which have irrevocably foundered. Now, of course, marriage is a business matter as well, no matter what the poets say. This is a most delicate matter. Your home is gone, your mother has passed on, Mary is no more, and your sister is engaged to Mr. Edsworth. Your fortune, were you able to recover any money from Mary? Lawrence shook his head. Your fortune, then, is no more. Yet you are an intelligent young man. It may be said that "'Life has been very keen to impress upon you certain lessons, "'and sometimes life does not spare the rod in the cultivation of wisdom. "'I cannot say whether that is true or not, "'but I do believe that tragedy can bring clarity.' it is a lack of clarity which brings tragedy, in that I concur.' "'What was unclear, Lawrence?' asked Lord Serbs, curious. "'What is vanity but a lack of limitations?' I was the apple of my mother's eye, and I ate that apple, mistaking it for truth. Sometimes when you set out to change the world, the world changes you. I'm reduced to poverty because I never saw the poor as human. I took responsibility for myself and away from others. We are always what we choose to be. I chose to ignore that and am now no longer what I was. And, and, and I listened to women. Go on. I listened to the wrong women. Lydia always told me the truth. When you don't listen, life yells louder until you do. I thought I was doing the right thing. And when you think something is right, you take all counsel against it as as deeply wrong. I alone should take responsibility, I thought. But if responsibility is a value for humanity, and we're all human, then responsibility must be for all. That is so, I think. It is better that this should happen while you are still quite young. You may end up wiser than us all. The cost is very high. I had planned to live my life without regrets. Everything I have lost but one was about the past. I inherited my lands, my house, my station, my family, but one. Lawrence took a deep breath. I have lost Lydia, I think. She does not respond to my letters. (laughs) Lydia was my future. That is what we thought. It has been very hard for her. Lawrence nodded. I cannot ask if there is a chance. Her lack of communication is clear. The door opened and Lydia entered. Father, can I speak to Larry alone? Lord Serbs nodded, then shook Lawrence's hand and left them. Lawrence could barely look at her. He felt an open wound, a deep need, and sheltered it. You deserved a reply, said Lydia. For everything we felt, you. Oh, Larry, I'm so, so sorry about what has happened. I can't work, I can't sleep. I feel something unholy has come between us. I I cannot match you. She took a seat, then rose again, shaking her head. There is no nobility in suffering, but from suffering can come nobility. I was not clear in my warnings because I wanted you to see for yourself. You were not unclear. He could not say her name. She shook her head violently. Damn it! It was also clear in my head this morning. (sighs) I cannot reconcile who you were and who you are. It's like some... Greek play? Was this susceptibility a singular weakness? Even that is unfair. I have never experienced what you have experienced. Who have you become? Lawrence's shoulders hunched together. I, I tried to keep it from you in my letters. There is a purity about you that, that, that I felt ashamed before. You are... Aesthetically, you you sing about tragedy. Every strong man flees when he feels weak, that is... I wanted to present my best to you. Even the desire to do good, what I thought was good, was tribute. Because I did not know myself. I could not give myself, all of myself, to you. I miss my father. I've become a caricature of manhood. I have made mistakes, but but I was teaching myself. And I should not care that you are poor. I have money enough, but I will not feel like a woman. No. That is to say, you would not feel like a man. That is unfair. But would I have to take care of you? Mary is not the only evil. You do not respect me no that is i can see that there is something uh, all i need is the truth i i may have made a mistake later and and woken up to eyes that scorned, not scorned i know that your intentions are the best in my mind's eye i take you in that feels wonderful in the moment but but i cannot see the long term of that i know i don't know what is idealism and what is nature He took a step towards her. Lydia, I have been to the very edges of myself. On the porch of my burning home, I almost killed her. Your very life is artistic. I have torn all refinery from my soul. I have been to where I am nothing but a predator, where where all the rules of the world come from. I have won what is real in me. You want me to look a certain way you fell in love with a portrait i know she whispered i know i don't know if i can and i too fell in love with a portrait you will age of course beautifully but who you are as you are now will fade you are too far ahead but what i know is that there is an essence to me and an essence to you my heart heart was torn open and so I can open yours life is elemental that is the life that transcends aging you will be forever worshipped as you are now but I can offer you something true something that is not worship but knowledge but how you do not know my essence she raised her eyes to his and a strange thing happened. Her beauty fell away from her face. It was muscles and skin, flesh that was already falling away from itself to the sink of history. His eyes widened. Lydia, I do see you. Our souls spoke to each other at the beginning, and and we found reasons for that speaking. Those reasons are not the truth. Of us. You have great courage. You would kill for our young. You believe in evil. I believe in evil. You do good. I have done good despite myself. We understand the marrow of right and wrong. But it was no good. He could feel the words draining away from him. Something pressed against his heart, a violence of passion and incomprehension. She felt it and drew back. Larry, I cannot go where you are. It is an experience I cannot have. No, he murmured, his heart heavy. This truth is not mine alone, but it is one we cannot share. A tear trickled from her eye. I will always admire you, and I you, and when you sing of passion and loss, I shall hear what you do not, and that will be our epitaph. Chapter 73 A Farewell Nature is never slow to reclaim her own. Dorset is covered with little buildings, and they go from spotless to rustic in a single season. The nails are taken, the windows reused, and every passing vagabond takes whatever wood he can find for a little heat. Within a few years, the rain bests the thatch, and within a single generation, it can take an anthropological eye to separate a little building from a Roman ruin. The loom factory had been heavily pilfered. The prying fingers of men and the endless drumming fingertips of nature aged it rapidly. The rapidity of its construction helped sag it to pure dilapidation with remarkable efficiency. When spring came, the fading building seemed from the inside to be a sad cathedral to the universal religion of lost hopes. Warming light began to shine in through the cracked walls and gaping windows. An unusual hot spell managed to wake the cold to mildew and then dry the mildew to a carpenter's tang of dried and unhealthy wood. But something seemed to wait in the factory. Something slumbered. The hopes had been so great and the execution so aborted that some shard of the future seemed to hang in mute expectation with the dust and bird droppings and flickering bats. So it stood one day in mid-April, when the sound of horses approached. The thudding and champing drew close, and then a group of people could be heard dismounting. A strong pair of hands opened the door, then a curse broke the air as the door collapsed to one side. A man's head peered cautiously in, then withdrew. "'It's a right heart-breaking wreck,' cried a voice. "'Ah, yes, Mr. Footer,' replied another man. "'But we have the capital now, and age is made young in the mirror of bright coin. I feel it in my bones!' "'Right you may be, Squire Pounder, but this be a very aged face to paint young cheeks on.' Lawrence entered. His hair and beard were very short, and he looked both younger and a lot less medieval. Jonathan, come and look at the economics of tomorrow. Wait, called Jonathan from outside. Kay is stuck in her stirrup. I can do it myself, John, said Kay. Jonathan entered, dressed in a suit which did not seem at ease in the country. The fabric seemed to recoil from the omnipresent dust and vegetation, it is as I thought he said you would be wiser to redirect your capital from reclaiming this dungeon of dirt and direct it towards a new building nearer the trade routes. An old conversation replied Squire Pounder, and one already concluded we are more interested in our new manager than his old building, as you see fit. oh John, don't be so pompous, said Kay. I'm a banker, we are pompous. Lawrence strode forward and tore the covering from a loom. Dust rose, and he stepped backwards. "'Not too bad,' he said, touching the wooden frame. "'Not much the worse for wear.' "'And we hire real workers this time,' said Adam. Lawrence turned and smiled at him. "'I may be wrong, but I believe I have learned just that much about justice.' This is the end of the novel, Just Poor, by me, the author, Stefan Molyneux, also read by me, the author, Stefan Molyneux. If you enjoyed this work, and I can't even tell you how long it took to research and to write, I would really appreciate it if you would support me at freedomain.com forward slash donate. And of course, I would love to hear your thoughts about the book. You can send me messages through freedomain.com. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed it.